Anyway, Shaw is still in the brig in Necrotia, where it is revealed in a retcon that he murdered Shinobi off panel at some point <laughs> because no one has bothered to use Shinobi like for years. Off, you know, he's like, yeah, do list. He was like, take out the laundry, kill my son. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Adewell, adjunct professor of public policy at the City University of New York, also known for his series Race to the Iron Throne, an academic deep dive analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin, which more recently was collected into a paperback, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, a couple. Like, you've done a couple of them at this point, mm -hmm. right? Up through Clash of Kings, maybe? Yes. I need to find a new publisher for Storm of Swords, because that one's going to be massive. Big, well, yeah, I mean, notably in the UK, they I mean, I'm sure you know this, but for the listeners, mm -hmm. they had to publish Storm of Swords as two books because the UK market refused to do the big doorstopper. I have not read your work on A Song of Ice and Fire in part because I found out about it more recently and I'm planning when Winds of Winter drops and it will. I have faith. Eventually, yes. I mean, I like, I've said this on the podcast before. He could not pick me out of a lineup with a gun to his head, but I've met George R. R. Martin a bunch of oh, times cool. through work. He is a great guy, incredibly generous with his time and with other creators and writers. I believe him when he says it's coming. I do. I think people mm -hmm. should just have a little patience and a little faith. I realize it's been a minute, but we waited a long, long time for Dance with Dragons, too. That is very true. And frankly, I'd rather wait longer and have the book be better, personally, than rush yes. it out. And I think maybe the show coming and going will make him feel less of a, a crunch. Mm -hmm. All that to say, I am excited to read your commentary when I go back and do a big reread, which I want to do in advance of Wins dropping because I'm a huge Song of Ice and Fire fan, but I've spent the last like 10 years just getting mad about the TV show and I should just yeah. revisit the I books because I actually like them. I covering the TV show at a certain point. I was just like, I'm saying the same things about how I don't like it. Was it when they married off... Sansa to Ramsey because that's when I stopped watching so I watched the whole way through I picked up the final season because I was like I'm not going to find out any details at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire via Twitter right. I'm going to have to like at least have them give it to me direct I still think though that most of what happened in that final season is not what will yeah happen. I actually when you get to to reading this stuff I have a couple essays about like where I think they they literally put things in reverse order. There's a great example that I always point to, which is the burning of Princess Shireen, which I'm sure will occur, but I think it will occur after the death of Stannis because I think it'll be Melisandre's attempt to resurrect him. Oh, that's interesting. That will fail because he's not Azarahai. I don't think that Stannis in the book would ever let them do that to Shireen. Mm. Not because he's a great guy, but because he specifically loves his weird scaly right. daughter. Right. In the book, anyway. Anyway, this is not in a Song of Ice and Fire podcast, but I'd love to come on sometime with you and just, like, rap about Westeros yeah, sure. at some point, because it is one of the franchises I love most. I used to do commentary about it on, like, Live Journal a million years ago, but that is all lost uh, to the sands of time, and never shall it be seen again. 
One of my favorite interactions with George, though, I'll share this with you, is after they put Sansa in the Jane Poole storyline, I ran into George at Worldcon. Mm -hmm. This was in Spokane, the year it was on fire. So it was my first Worldcon, actually. Worldcon, for people listening, is the World Science Fiction Convention. It moves around and they host the Hugo Awards. So I was there for work. I bought him a drink and then I said, Sansa is my favorite character, so I'm waiting on your version. Mm -hmm. And he started to laugh and laugh and laugh. And he just looked at me and said, she has a lot to do in my version, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I said, well, I'm glad to hear it. I said, I love Princess Ariane too. And, you know, he goes, yeah, well, she's got a lot to do also. But once you cut the Griff storyline, I guess you're going to have to cut Ariane because it seems like that's where her story is going. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm digressing. We're already 10 minutes into this recording and I could do this for ages because I love those books. Case in point, the Strife episode where while going deep on my completely incorrect teen cable is Strife theory, I point out that I was also... 1,000% 1,000% in the tank on Talos Omega being a Lannister spy. So, oh, you know. I fully believe that. I, I It's the only reason to so make hard. the change. Yeah. It's the only reason to change the character. All right. Anyway, we are here, though, to talk about the X-Men, a franchise I love for some of the same reasons that I love A Song of Ice and Fire. It has really ornate world building. Mm -hmm. It has really complex character relationships that build over long periods of time. It has a lot of really prominent and occasionally messy female characters that I can stand. And it mostly springs from the quirky imagination of one sort of weird but pretty cool guy who grew up reading Marvel comics. I mean, there is a yeah. strong through line there. I wouldn't say that Chris Claremont and George R. R. Martin are similar writers necessarily in terms of... No, but of... they certainly knew each other. Yes, no, they are acquainted, certainly. And I pointed out in the Fenris episode that I'm fairly confident Jamie and Cersei are in part inspired <laughs> by those characters. I really do believe yeah. that. Yeah. You know, because George was writing into Fantastic Four as a Mm 12-year-old. Like, there's a letter printed that you can read. I'm sure you know that. I'm just expounding for the listeners. We are here to talk about a character specifically who I think bridges the gap very well because he's a very Peter Baelish kind of character, Mm. right? The book version of Peter Baelish, not the show version of Peter Baelish. No disrespect to Aidan Gillen. And if I went into my issues with that adaptation choice, we'd be here all day. The idea of the man of modest means who becomes the master of coin, who is working against all of his own interests in the pursuit of riding the wave that might result from the destruction. The show's chaos is a ladder speech is actually very Sebastian Shaw, much as he is a lawful evil sort of character. What his personal code is about is causing a lot of problems that he can then exploit to corner markets. Yeah. And so in that way, he's very much like the characters jockeying politically in A Song of Ice and Fire. And one of my biggest issues with 
the TV show was that those political machinations get really, really simplified or often thrown out. Mm -hmm. And that's why he interests me as a character outside of his relationships with characters like Emma, who mm -hmm. I'm naturally more drawn to. But as a character unto himself, I think he has a lot to say about treason within minority groups, mm -hmm. about capitalism and about minority capitalism in a way that's different from what Emma says about it and other things that will no doubt be interesting to talk about with a professor of public policy. Before we get into Sebastian Shaw, the Black King, the erstwhile Black King at least, now he is titleless for the Black moment. King. Yes. It's one of those things where, yeah, give him a second, he'll be back. It's happened before, don't worry about it, you know? Before we get into Shaw, I would love to hear a little bit about your origin story with the X-Men, how you came to love this franchise, and what it means to you. So I have a, a slightly different origin story than, than some of your guests, which is I didn't have anyone in my family who is a collector, and there was no comic book store in my neighborhood growing up. But... My parents, both being academics, thought that comic books were good for teaching me to read. Sure. And so I had kind of free run of the Barnes & Noble graphic novel section. And so I picked up, there was one called Uncanny X-Men, which was like giant size through the Phoenix Saga. There was the Dark Phoenix Saga from the Ashes. As Guardian Wars, Extinction Agenda, but notably, I never got as a kid Fall of the Mutants or Inferno, which were like big holes in my continuity. Yeah, and those are my favorites. My parents thought that Claremont's Purple Prose was like good vocabulary building. So they were like happy to, to get me X Men stuff. And then the other half of it, I kind of have to explain for people who, who didn't grow up in New York City in the 90s, because before Giuliani deported them all to New Jersey, there used to be card table guys on Broadway who sell stuff secondhand. And because this was the early 90s, and it was the height of the speculator boom, mm. they had comic books. It wasn't like going to a comic book store and getting the weekly poll. They weren't carrying everything. They were carrying all the stuff that they thought was going to become a collector's item. So it was all of the most exploitative shit that the big two came up with in the 90s. You know, lenticular covers, holographic Foil covers. and this and mm -hmm. that. Yes, absolutely. The Wolverine cover with the claws ripping through the manila folder. You know, I was a, a, a kid. I was a mark for all of that. And I was sort of like putting that stuff together with the Claremont trade paperbacks and like trying to sort of mentally figure out like, okay, how did we get from here to here? Why is Storm all of a sudden a child? <laughs> Great Magneto's question. bad now? And so I, I kind of came away with this idea of the X-Men as like Greek myth. Uh, in that like the chronology doesn't always super matter. There's a, a giant cast of characters. You know, Hercules might show up in this issue or, you know, whatever. You know, Theseus. 
they're not always the same guy, though. And it yeah. doesn't always matter what order the stories took place in. Like, how is Hercules with the Argonauts when he's also in this time period? Who cares? It doesn't super right. matter. These are different traditions of the hero cult of Hercules that contradict each other over time. Right. And this character is also a good example of that because, like, is Sebastian Shaw the scion of a once proud house or is he a completely self made man? Yeah. Those are very inconsistent origin stories we're given. To Claremont, he was completely self made. Then later writers messed that up, and then Ben Robb tried to square the circle in a way that kind of works, but not 100%. And that's one of the things with these characters. Emma is another huge one. You can't always make it all fit. Yes. As Teeny Howard said on the very first episode of this podcast, when you are writing these characters, you have to make an argument, and continuity is your argument. You fall back on the stories as evidence that back up your argument, but you also disregard the stories that don't help the story that you're trying to tell, so long as you understand what those stories are saying and can explain the choice you're making, you know what I mean? Yeah. I bounced out of X-Men towards the, like, late 90s. Age of Apocalypse was, like, my event as a kid. It was the first one I collected. And then in high school, I got into Grant Morrison's new X-Men, sitting in Newberry Comics trying to read as many trade paperbacks before they threw me out as a penniless teen. And then I left again after the decimation. Came back, like, briefly for the Bendis stuff, because I heard that was good. But it was really the Jonathan Hickman Oxbox that, like... I was like, okay, the the X-Men is about stuff. We're back, baby. There's something being said. It's so exciting. Nation building and (laughs) capitalism and all this crazy stuff. So that's my my origin story with the X-Men. What is it about Shaw that appeals to you? Because we, for the listeners, talked about doing this episode... A while Almost ago, yeah. two years ago, actually. And I wanted to let Jerry's Marauders play out first because mm-hmm. Shaw's status in it was so up in the air a lot of the time. And then I just became distracted by a lot of other <laughs> episodes I needed to do. So when I found a place for this in the schedule, I was excited about it. But you have been on the Let's Talk About Shaw train for a while. So why don't you explain a little bit why he stands out to you as a character? I have a a thesis about Shaw, which is I think he is a indictment of the American dream. Mm. I find that fascinating. The way that everything in his life always comes back to, like, capitalist modes of investment, consumption, production. He has really turned everything in his life into transactions. And then the other thing that I think is is great is that, and interesting about him, is that so much of the different parts of his character, because he's, you know, on paper, he's kind of a lot. He's like, okay, evil businessman... Dresses like he's from the 18th century. BDSM. Universally horrible to women. Just a lot of really special traits. Yeah. But I think they all tie in together. They all sort of reinforce that central theme. For example, one of the things I find fascinating about him, because 
I am by training a historian of public policy is he is very old timey. It's the way he chooses to dress in the, the flashback scenes. His parents are like wearing 19th century clothing. Like if you right. told me he was, <laughs> if you as, told me he was an immortal character, I would yeah, believe you. If he because, was as yeah. old as Logan, it would totally make sense. And, you know, also it's like, you know, his father being an immigrant from England who comes to work in the Pittsburgh. Yeah. That's a very specific mid-19th century phenomenon. Right. It does feel very out of time the way that that backstory is given to us. Actually, that reminds me, listener Wellsen wrote in, more of a request than a question. If you do any reading, could you please use Sean, the voice of Matt Berry? Thanks to Kieran Gillen for planting this in my brain. Regards, Wellsen, big fan since Betsy. And the thing is, Wellsen, Shaw is American. Yeah. And a lot of people are very surprised to learn that because, he, but he's like from Pennsylvania. He's, he's not. from Pittsburgh. He's <laughs> like not, not even, even Philly. The, yeah. Right. He's not even from the right city in Pennsylvania. If you want to be of the a elite. colonial weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. That gets to like another thing that I find kind of fascinating about him is that like, at least in his incarnation as a self-made man, or, you know, at least the, the son of a failed businessman. Well, it, it has worked out either way because the retcon has been, yes, he comes from an old family, but his father lost all the money. So he is a self-made man because he had to rebuild it all himself. Right. So it works out fine. That's for the listeners who are not familiar. That's been the overall fix. Right. And what I find fascinating is how someone like Sebastian Shaw who has the soul of a 19th century robber baron Mm -hmm. and the heart of a scab got through a steel factory in Pittsburgh and absorbed nothing from the United Steelworkers is bizarre because there's, you know, the United Steelworkers is like a union with like a long historical memory. It goes all the way back to the Homestead strike. It's about, you know, the civil rights movement and and the Birmingham campaign and all of that. But like even historical memory aside, like you don't last long when your coworkers think that you're a scab and you're surrounded by molten metal. <laughs> and somehow he managed to walk out of Pittsburgh with no sense of solidarity to any one of his class. Even though, and I, I, I actually, you know, even though a lot about the, the Ben Robb miniseries is like weird and wacky. But I do think that having them be a formerly wealthy family that's fallen into disrepute helps explain that. Yes, because that then does. he's a temporarily embarrassed millionaire, not right. a poor person. He right? thinks he's better. Exactly. But the the scene where he acquires his mutant powers, mm-hmm. right? When he does get attacked, yeah. Yeah, he finds out that he's gotten a full ride to the Stevens Institute of Technology, which is a real, uh, very prestigious engineering school in, in Pennsylvania. And a bunch of rich college students decide to beat the shit out of him with pool cues. Right, because he's a townie who's up jumped and doesn't know how to behave right. and all of that. And his takeaway is not like, hmm, 
I should be in, in solidarity with the other people facing this kind of bigotry. It's like, fuck it, I'm invincible now. I'm invulnerable, Nobody, so it yeah. doesn't matter. Right, yeah, no, he doesn't think about the people who are not invulnerable. That's right. not how he operates, really, ever. Yeah, and the same thing applies to the mutant metaphor, which is there's this great moment in Dark Phoenix Saga where uh, Nightcrawler is asking him, like, hey, why are you fucking with us? Right. And I'm just going to read the quote. Yeah, go for it. Superpowered mutants are becoming commonplace in the world. If my associates and I can isolate the genetic quirk that created us, then custom build through genetic engineering, mutants at will, the possibilities are limitless. In that quest, Nightcrawler, you X-Men will be our guinea pigs. And it's like, to him, like... He's not in solidarity with mutants. He's not part of a community. Mutancy itself is intellectual property. Is a resource. It's resource management. Yeah, yeah it's all IP. The Sentinels are IP for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the things that's funniest about it, honestly. Yes. Is that he wants a stake in the Sentinels. Yeah, and it's why... It's unsurprising that, like, Kieran Gillen wrote an absolutely definitive Sebastian Shaw issue. But that line where he says, people always ask me if I regret investing in Sentinels. Of course I do. If I'd got in sooner, I could have made a few more points. That is great. That's his mentality. Yeah. He's also really weird in that he is, like, for the 1980s, Shaw Heavy Industries should be the company that is getting preyed upon by Gordon Gecko. Mm-hmm. Like, it should be being chopped up and, like, offshored. But, like, instead, because he is so politically connected, he becomes this sort of U.S. government arms manufacturer. For Gen Z, by the way, Gordon Gecko is the character Michael Douglas plays in the 80s movie Wall Street by Oliver Stone, which is a classic that is worth taking a look at if things like the Hellfire Club interest you. What... I find interesting about, like, his interactions with, like, Project Wide Awake and Senator Kelly and Henry Peter Geirich, and this sort of feeds into his, like, relationships with women and his whole, I think, not really BDSM, but, like, abuse thing. Well, yeah. Is at every stage, women are telling him, this is a bad idea. Lord Chantel says it. Emma says it. Tessa says it. Yeah. He always thinks he knows better because worst comes to worst and someone punches him in the face, it makes him stronger. And he doesn't really learn his lesson until Nimrod punches him into orbit. And even then, it's like so temporary. Yeah, even then, his whole plan is let me design Nimrod so that I'm in charge of it. Right. (laughs) so like in the future that nimrod comes from so you know not the most introspective guy i mean the point about women we'll certainly get into that as it goes on but i'm interested in sebastian shaw's mother which is a character we've never really seen yes that's an interesting absence 
there's an interesting gap there. And what I wonder is like, was she around? Is she like dead, like a Disney character? Yeah. What is the or story a there? Or Martin character. There's, well, sure. There's right. a lot yeah. of women dead in childbirth in that, in Song of Ice and Fire. But there are also a lot of Catelyn Starks who outlive yeah. their husbands. And That's I think true. what interests me is there's something about the way Shaw treats women that feels born of some deeper complex that we've never gotten at the yeah, root of. I would agree and with that. I'm curious as to the relationship between his parents, because I feel like that is something you model, right, based on your parents to some extent. Not everybody. Some people right. come from very abusive situations and are not abusive people. But it does feel like something that you learn from watching. Yeah. At the same time, he disdains his father. So was his mother really domineering and he doesn't respect his father so he won't let right. women dominate him? Like, what is it? There's lots yeah. of ways it could go. Is, is it just like never a, seen it. Uh, a Madonna whore complex? Exactly. Where it's like she was the one good woman in existence for him and everyone else is consumption. Or is it she was a nasty Virago fishwife and I'll never let a woman talk to me the way she spoke to my father? Like, it right. could go yeah. either way. In terms of how he regarded her, and that's something that I think would be interesting, particularly given that he's interacting right now with the character Mother Righteous, who is playing yes. on that maternal instinct as part of her con. And it's interesting that he he got in on the Mother Righteous thing through Celine, who is another woman who, like terrifies who he can't stand, right? And yeah. who scares the absolute shit out of him. One thing I will say. That bothered me. And Kieran is a friend of mine. I love Kieran. And this is Shaw speaking. So I'm going to chalk it up to Shaw being a misogynist. But the bit about how I should have known Celine would need help to do that big spell. I'm like, I disagree. She nearly <laughs> killed you the first time you met. You are just an asshole. But yeah, okay. No, he's, he's massively covering for insecurity. I'm just like, I don't want anyone to think that Celine does need the help of Mother Righteous to make a gigantic woodlouse. She doesn't. She can do that all by herself. I guess it was kind of alive. She mostly does inanimate things. But, you know, still. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you can turn yourself into a gigantic, you know... Uh, Giant blue ass god? Yeah. yeah I just, I she just did say. that without the help of a Mr. Sinister with hot tits so yeah. i don't think she needed mother righteous necessarily but we will see as that plot develops by the time you're hearing this episode sins of sinister will be well underway yes it is the the sins of sinister eve tonight i'm looking forward to it but in any case sebastian shaw sebastian hiram shaw for people that's a very old-timey name unfamiliar is the black king of the hellfire club created by chris claremont and john byrne introduced in 1980s x-men 129 was that 79 i always get mixed up with the cover dates on this me too it's the same one that kitty it's and emma appear in for the first or, time or so 80. i think it's 80 the cover date's definitely 80 but sometimes back then they would have a cover date that was a few months later it's god save the child the first part of the dark phoenix saga he's created for the dark phoenix saga as the big bad of the hellfire club a mysterious organization that has been lurking in the background of the claremont x-men comics pretty much since right after giant size they are retconned they finance stephen lang 
Yes, the Council of the Chosen, the mysterious robed people who just look like exactly like the Secret Empire in the Stephen Lang story, are retconned via the Lordis Chantel classic X-Men backup into having been the previous iteration of the Inner Circle under Ned Buckman before Shaw took over and renamed the Inner Circle the Lord's Cardinal after Lordis Chantel, which is just a very Claremonty moment it's like well, i guess the initials lordis and lords i guess yeah it's also you know claremont and Byrne are like playing with almost like alice in wonderland like you know okay we're gonna do chess pieces and playing cards and mm-hmm. all kinds of like weird symbolism because i guess they don't want to get too occult right even though the real hellfire club was this kind of pseudo pagan-ish society yeah. for rich guys who want to get drunk and fuck like a lot. Like the Masons, like the Golden Dawn, yeah. like all of those organizations that were part social club for the wealthy and part pagan secret society. The Hellfire Club itself comes from an episode, I mean, it's a real thing, but Claremont's version of it comes primarily from an episode of the 60s show The Avengers mm-hmm. called A Touch of Brimstone, in which the late Diana Rigg, also of mm-hmm. A Game of Thrones, or Game of Thrones, the TV show, rather, where she played Lady Olena Tyrell, was at that point playing Mrs. Emma Peel, the sexy spy lady with the hip cutouts, a key sex symbol of the mod era. And in the episode, A Touch of Brimstone, she infiltrates the Hellfire Club, which is basically the Hellfire Club from X-Men. Right. Down to the... the- you know, Regency outfits and BDSM stuff. Yes. And the outfit that Jean Grey gets put in with the updo in Dark Phoenix Saga is the same outfit that they put Diana Rigg in in that episode. That episode also guest stars the actor Peter Wingard. Hence Jason Wingard, yeah. Yeah, who gives Jason Wingard his name. Sebastian Shaw is similarly a reference... To the actor Robert Shaw, right, who was a Shakespearean actor, also British, Academy Award nominee. He's Quentin Jaws is probably his most famous. Oh, right, yeah, I can, I can see that. Yeah, the other really big one that is the one I always remember him from is he's Red Grant, the assassin that James Bond fights in From Russia with Love on the train, Mm -hmm. who's like a really scary dude, but also hot. Which is very Sebastian Shaw. Yeah. Sebastian Shaw is kind of interesting because, like, in God Save the Child, he is kind of this slightly Bill Sykes-looking dude. Mm-hmm. He's, like, on a monitor to to Emma and being like, you know, yes, our plans are... Our evil schemes are afoot. Right, exactly. The moment that always, like, stood out to me is a little bit later in the Phoenix Saga where he shows up shirtless in the the green britches and and the yellow sash and just beats the shit out of Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Storm. And Storm. And if you can beat Storm... Storm was the one that freaked me out as a kid. If you can beat Storm in a Chris Claremont comic, we're being told that you are a really scary character. Yeah. And... He, like, doesn't just sort of defeat her in a power duel. He, like, puts his hands on her 
And that mm-hmm. almost never happens. Like, villains are supposed to simp for Storm. Right. They want to make her their queen and yada yada. He grabs her cape and slams her into the and ground. Punches, he punches her in the her. back of the head. Yeah. yeah, like it's very physical. And it's after Colossus's punches have powered him up kinetically. Because yes. Shaw's power, for people who are not familiar, it's actually not unlike Bishop. Except that unlike Bishop, who releases the energy as blasts, He absorbs any kinetic energy that is sent into his body and it turns into durability and strength. So he becomes stronger and more indestructible the more he is struck. Right. It is the ultimate BDSM power. Yeah. Literally, the more you beat him, the The more you beat him, the stronger he becomes. And so he can participate in BDSM shenanigans without ever actually losing the power. He has the ultimate ability to let a woman dominate him while knowing that he can snap her neck at a moment's notice. Like that is sort of the deeper symbolism of his power, right? Yeah. And I've always wondered just because he seemed to be really enjoying it when Colossus punched him. Mm-hmm. I'm like, does he go in for that? Because... Well, according to Jonathan Hickman, he does. And we'll yeah. get there when we get into the Krakoa era. Because that's the thing, too, is like... This also, to me, is the subtext of his relationship with Harry Leland. Yes. Because I don't think... Like, yes, he has the perfect BDSM power, but I don't buy Shaw ever letting a woman dominate him. That's the thing. Like, conceptually, it's Chris Claremont's notion of the ideal BDSM power because Chris Claremont is simping for Storm. But Shaw is the kind of man who seeks only to dominate women. Right. And so my question is, who is beating Shaw erotically? And it might be other men. Yeah. So one thing I've sort of thought is like, okay, does he have like a Samson thing going on where it's like displaying how little your, your domination means to me? Is he a switch? Is he topping from the bottom in a really assholey way? Or is he presenting as a dom? Despite his his powers. I think he presents as a dom despite the power and Tessa is meant to indicate that to us from the earliest appearances because she always appears as his submissive, putting his clothes on, taking his clothes off, robing him, disrobing him. You haven't seen it yet, but the cover art for this episode is just a John Byrne drawing of Tessa putting Shaw's robe on. Yeah, I I have that panel up right now. He doesn't have that many costumes, so I'm just going to do this because it's a gorgeous piece of art, and he looks incredible, and so does she, frankly. Yeah. One of the things that I was sort of thinking about with Shaw is that he seems not to... Like, I think in his heart of hearts, not to be an actual BDSM person Mm. in that he's got no interest in consent, negotiation, aftercare. He just likes violence and sex. Right. And I think he's one of those people who would normally be orbiting the scene, who uses the tropes of BDSM to, like, lure people who are new to the scene into abusive relationships, except that he owns the fucking club. He owns the club, right. But he owns the club because he seized it, is the other thing. Like, he comes in and, like, Ned Buckman and Paris Seville feel more like the kind of poly BDSM weirdos, all respect intended, if you're listening and you are a poly BDSM weirdo. 
who you would expect to run the Hellfire Club. Shaw and Emma seize control of it by their own power, using their mutant abilities because of the death of Lourdes, right. allegedly. We'll get there. But <laughs> that is the thing, is I don't think Shaw is the kind of man who would have set up exactly what he inherits. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think he... he... He likes he's into it. He's into the scene. Yeah. He's into the trappings, but he's not that interested in like, like, for example, it's stated many times that guests of the Hellfire Club can have any weird sex that they want. And like there are rooms where the walls are glass and people can see each right. other and all kinds of cool stuff that we never get to see on panel because it's the comics code era. But I've always assumed. All right, here, I'm just going to say it. To me, Sebastian Shaw is more of a Jeffrey Epstein figure. Yeah, I could see that. I don't mean in the sense of pedophilia, so I just want to be very clear on that. But he wants dirt on everyone. It's like Scientology right. and auditing. He welcomes you into his club because you will then do something that embarrasses you and he will have photographs of it. He's like Miss Scarlet in the Clue movie right, right, as played right. by Leslie Ann Warren, where it's like, yes, she is a madam. She believes in sex work and believes sex work is work. Also, she is getting harmful secrets about government officials so she can blackmail them. Right. Like that is sort of, I think, what's going on here. I mean, I think that a real key to his relationship with Senator Kelly is that Senator Kelly's wife, Sharon... Was a waitress. Was a Hellfire Club waitress. Which I've always wondered, like... Shaw introduced him to at the club. Right, right, right. And I've always wondered whether that was meant to be a... Um, a sex work thing. No, no, no. Not a sex work thing. The shoot. Who's the politician with the monkey business? Oh, um, uh, uh, they just did a movie. I swear to God, I'm monkey smart. Monkey business. No, I know. Politician. <laughs> Gary Hart. Gary Hart. I've always wondered whether Kelly is supposed to be Gary Hart. Because that's like such a politically explosive relationship where you're like any journalist finds out right. what your wife used to do for a living and your presidential career is fucking toast. But he keeps coming to the, the Hellfire Club. He's there in the Dark Phoenix saga. He's, you know. But the thing is that the Gary Hart scandal happens in like 87, 88. So it's after that Sharon Kelly story. Yeah, that's true. It's just, I don't know. There's something evocative. To me, it's a Hugh Hefner moment, right? Okay. It's like Sharon was one of the bunnies at the club and he introduced her to this senator who then, or it's like a Marilyn Monroe kind of thing in terms of the way that people have conceptualized the relationships between Marilyn and the Kennedy brothers. Right. Where it's like the fact that it's stupidly dangerous is part of- Is direction. part of what appeals to them. And Sharon Kelly is the character I find super- Super fascinating for oh, a lot of reasons. Oh, she's great. I'm, I'm so sad she got fridged. Here, Well, here's the thing. What I would say is like, and I like, not to defend the, the murder of women in narratives. It's important to this episode, though, because Lourdes Chantel is the other big one. Lourdes Chantel yes. and Sharon Kelly are really the only two women that Claremont does that with over the course of his run. But in both cases, they're characters who are introduced to die, which I think is slightly different from the way that fridging... That is true. That is true. It's different it's from like, Candy Southern or Cotmachee yeah, or like other a, characters a, where they're a junk. mentor figure 
in like fantasy novels where they're supposed to die. It's like the fugitive and like my dead wife is itself a trope, but it's one thing when it's the origin story. The Punisher is another one. I don't think you can consider the Punisher's wife to have been fridged because she's dead before the story starts. You know what I mean? So just to be precise with terms, that's all. But no, Sharon Kelly is also interesting to me because I always, I've said this before on the show, I get very intrigued whenever a character in a Claremont comic is named Sharon because that's his mother's name. Right. It's a very like limited, interesting list of characters. It's Sharon Friedlander, the nurse, Sharon Kelly, the wife of Senator Kelly, and Sharon Smith, Cat's Eye. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know Cat's Eye's name. Yeah. I mean, and I assume that Emma named her because she probably didn't have a name when she arrived besides Cat's Eye. So maybe she was just like, she looks like a Sharon. Or maybe she named her after Sharon Kelly because if they're all hanging out. <laughs> right. It's like, maybe it was like in honor because Sharon Kelly's dead by then. Maybe that's why Emma names Cat's Eye Sharon. This is a story now, free idea for me to write. I used to say free idea for anyone to write, but Marvel, if you're listening, I will write the Cat's Eye origin story that gives Sharon Kelly her day in the sun. No, but the point is, Shaw is, to go back to the Epstein moment, like, I think that what he is doing is, okay, Senator Kelly is a Republican who's going to be president someday, maybe. I'm going to make sure that I have something on him. Actually, I don't think, know that Kelly, at least in the 80s, is a Republican. Because he runs against, I mean, as a presidential candidate, he ran against Reagan. But technically, Jimmy Carter approves Project Wide Awake. So you have to allow at a certain point for the fact that it's not exactly our world. Maybe it was a primary run. Yeah. He was there with with Reagan when Reagan had his moment about the microphone in New Hampshire. But anyway, I digress. I was going to bring up the Jimmy Carter thing later because it's a comic that came out like the cover date on it is during the Reagan administration, but it actually came out while Carter was still president. But I think it was with the understanding on Claremont's part that Reagan was going to win. (laughs) So Yeah, I mean, I think people saw that one coming. Oh, yeah. And it's definitely Reagan in the story. So it's just one of those weird things where it's like a little bit of a destiny moment on Chris's part. But I mean, you know, that's in the middle of the Iran hostage crisis and all of that stuff. So it is complicated. And this is not... An Iran hostage crisis podcast. (laughs) I think what makes the most sense with Shaw, because he is a villain and therefore a more sparingly appearing character, is just to go through and talk about the stories that are worth talking about. If I skip over one that you think is worth talking about, just stop me and we'll go back to it. I figure we'll go up through his first death. And then do the character file and then come back to talk about the things that happened after it turns out he wasn't actually dead, which is, you know, Sounds classic good. superhero comics. But uh, he seemed really dead for a good minute there. Yeah, he got fingers put through his chest and then blown up. Mm-hmm, sure did. So uh, Sebastian Shaw, as I said earlier, makes his first appearance in X-Men 129. I was going to say Uncanny X-Men 129, but it's actually not Uncanny until after Dark Phoenix Saga. It's called Uncanny X-Men in the title pages from the beginning of Claremont's run, but not Mm -hmm. on the cover. He is, as I said, sort of the big bad who brings together a couple different threads that... Claremont had planted that need to be retroactively tied together. So, for example, the Council of the Chosen is actually the Hellfire Club, and they were the ones funding Stephen Lang's Project Armageddon. Also, remember when Warhawk invaded yes, the X-Mansion? Yes, random blue guy. 
Yeah, who looks like Colossus but isn't, who compromised Cerebro. Oh, it was the Hellfire Club who hired him to do that. Cerebro has been compromised. That's why during Dark Phoenix Saga, when Cerebro detects Kitty and Dazzler, the Hellfire Club is also informed of these new manifestations. Throughout the previous issues, Jean is in her seduced by mastermind era. Right. And we start to see Shaw appear in those images as well. Yeah, he's a priest. That's really interesting to me. He's in like not with like a collar, so it's well with an like Anglican a, collar, which is that's like what I'm saying. A right. rare example of them actually getting the the religion of colonial New England right. As opposed to a lot of the Wolfsbane stuff, where writers think she's Catholic but she's yep. Presbyterian. This actually like it's Protestant, so it's a priest that could. Fuck you if he wanted to, which I think is key to the Shaw vibe here is he's the one who presides over the illusory marriage in a desecrated chapel. It's very black mass of Lady Jean Grey and Jason Wingard. Yeah, it's very black mass and important to remember also here, as you note, that the pagan stuff has been kind of stripped out of the Hellfire Club in this story that Chris Claremont's wife at the time, Bonnie Wilford, was a Wiccan priestess. Right, probably wouldn't have approved. And was a big deal in the downtown New York Wiccan scene. I'm not going to claim that they were in the BDSM scene, because I don't know, but those scenes overlapped a great deal, and I've read Chris Claremont X-Men comics. So (laughs) just (laughs) putting that out there, but certainly... Claremont is Wicca sympathetic. So I think that the pagan elements were not something he wanted to associate necessarily with these villains. Shaw is mostly, as you pointed out, a looming presence on screens until they actually go to the Hellfire Club when Warren and Candy get them invites because they're members of the Hellfire Club and went one time and thought it was tacky and never went back. And I always loved the description, stuffy yet risque. It's like kinky, but very safely heteronormative. Like the women are fetish maids, but the the men men are all covered. Are in costume, but not really sexy costume, just period costume. Right. The women are not in period costume. They're just in lingerie. Like it's like, like a corset is period, but that corset's not period. You know what I mean? And you, you certainly wouldn't wear just a corset. Certainly not with a thong. No. And a ghastly cloak. You know, it's a very specific outfit. This is after Emma and Phoenix have had their big showdown and Emma's gotten her shit rocked. It always startles me that Emma isn't there at the Hellfire Club. I know. Like, she's such a missing presence. She was dead. I mean, like, it's a, they, <laughs> yeah. like she gets retconned out of it pretty quickly. But in the initial story, as it's presented, Jean kills her. Yeah. Well, she kills herself because Jean's about like she self-destructs the whole. But like, you know, she ends up retroactively in a coma, which is where Emma loves to be. Loves we'll a coma. Have that happen a couple more times throughout. Anyway, the X-Men go to the Hellfire Club and they fight Shaw and Leland and Donald Pierce, Shaw's attaché. Leland is also a mutant with the power to control mass and density in other people and objects. Pierce is not a mutant, which will be important later. I'm surprised he survived the purge. I am too, and there's a retcon story that explains why, and I was glad that that it was explained. Yeah, no, I was looking through, when I was working on the character file for this... 
the Ben Rob stuff alludes to it, but there's also a cable issue yes. that explains that I, when I read that that weird cable story where they're going after Apocalypse's technology. Right. It's so yeah, strange. and basically Cable was responsible for Pierce losing those limbs. Oh, really? Interesting. And Shaw, like Shaw's engineering company created the prosthetics that Donald Pierce uses. Okay, okay. And so he has like a debt to Shaw and so Shaw trusts him, but it turns out that's probably a mistake long term. (laughs) Right. But that's very Shaw. Like he tends to think that once someone is under his thumb, he should never be worried about what they might be otherwise doing. Tessa is another great example. And Emma is too, frankly. Like he just sort of assumes that once he has someone cowed, that they are his creature. That tends to blow up in his face. But so the X-Men fight Shaw and Leland and Pierce and various Hellfire Club guards. And unfortunately for them, Jean Grey, who has fully been brainwashed at this point into becoming the first black queen of the Hellfire Club, the first one we see anyway, who is bad news. She's not a nice lady. (laughs) She is all in on being Jason Wingard's wife. She is all in on being Aurora's slave master, which is a little bit arresting to read. And, you know, all in on killing the X-Men. Shaw defeats Colossus and Storm, as we said before, which was pretty incredible as a reader because those are the two most powerful characters on the team, right? So when someone takes them out without much effort, you're kind of like, oh, okay, you sit up and you take notice. Then we get the Wolverine Alone issue, which is really famous. I have to say, I I love Sebastian Shaw's thought bubbles when uh, he's like dueling with jason wingard because it's like total social darwinism he has no friends it's all like this guy's out to screw me over but i'm gonna get him first i'm gonna screw him first right yeah Yeah. wolverine is believed to have been defeated by leland but he wasn't actually and he claws his way back into the club butchers leland like practically kills him and the x-men break free yeah shish kebab shaw and pierce run away through the sewers and they are really pissed and he has another great thought bubble he's like this moment is yours x-men enjoy it while you can because before i'm finished you'll be known throughout the land throughout the world as public enemy number one yeah and it's a a a good sort of sign of like his use of political connections and pr where he's like Mm -hmm. you know maybe you can beat me in a fight but i can use the new york post to destroy you destroy you yeah, and that's again where it feels Epsteiny. It feels Trumpy to me. It mm. feels very in the same way that Lex Luthor in the eighties and nineties is very Trump. Mm. And you know, to younger listeners, long before Trump was the president of the United States, he was just a guy everyone in New York really fucking hated because he behaved this way all the time. So, yeah. you know. That's also kind of the vibe. There's like a Leona Helmsley energy to a lot of Shaw's stories also. I bet they were friends. I bet. Well, except that Shaw hates women, but I yes, feel like. Yes, that's Leo- true. It, okay. But I do feel they like Leona out. Helmsley. No, I feel like Leona Helmsley is the kind of woman that Sebastian Shaw would respect. And for the Gen Z listeners, Google Leona Helmsley. It's a wild ride. <laughs> anyway. What he did not foresee from his efforts to brainwash and sexually enslave Jean Grey, 
is that she will become the Dark Phoenix, which is what happens here after she breaks free from Mastermind's control and turns on him and fries his mind by opening it to all the possibilities of the cosmos. That is the end of Mastermind for quite some time. Shaw just sort of runs off to yeah. Worry he's about like, I, I know, later. like this is all gone <laughs> tits up. I'm, I'm, you know, being I'm out. Right. Safe. It is notable that Shaw and Emma and Mastermind are by proxy somewhat responsible for the destruction of the Dabari system, but yeah. they didn't know she could do that. To be fair to them. <laughs> Meddling with forces beyond their comprehension. He loves to do that. That's the thing, right? Yeah. Shaw blames the whole situation at the Hellfire Club on the X-Men. He appeals to Senator Kelly, who is introduced here as his longtime friend and a member of the club, and is like, the mutant menace, right? You hate these guys. Look at them. Because the thing about Shaw, and this is really critical and something that I don't think newer readers necessarily know is that like until the utopia era, I want to say Shaw is closeted as a mutant. Yes. No one knows that he's a mutant besides Emma and the X-Men and other like characters who are in the know, but to the wider world, it is totally a secret. Yeah. And there's a, there's a great bit in classic X-Men number six where he's like, sicking the the sentinel you know his sentinels on the x-men mm-hmm. and someone maybe it's tessa someone in the hellfire club is like aren't you worried that the sentinels are going to turn on you and he's like no i've got personal shields that make me read as humans to the sentinels and it's such a perfect that metaphor key he has made sure that the sentinels that he has been funding have programming in their system that identifies him not emma not leland not anyone else him specifically sentinels cannot read him as a mutant right he doesn't think to program in lordess chantel is not a mutant yes that's very true again no solidarity well, and no foresight about yes. the consequences of his actions. But it is like this dark side of minority capitalism, which is like he really thinks that his wealth completely insulates him from bigotry. Absolutely. Where it's like that's something that other mutants have to deal with. I'm rich. Right. I've gamed my way out of it. That is, in many ways, his tragic flaw as a character always. is his. And mm-hmm. the thing about Krakoa that's interesting is seeing him grapple with that and try to find a place in mutant society that is not entirely narcissistic and watching Emma and Kate pen him into scenarios in which he is forced right. to be more altruistic, which is kind of fun. That's what a lot of Jerry's marauders hinged on. So after this attack and all of that is when he goes to Senator Kelly and is like, I think we should bring back the Sentinels. You know how the government shut that project down that I was funding? I think it's time 
for them to I come back. I need some government contracts. And that's when Project Wide Awake spins up for the first time. And for a while, Shaw just kind of lurks around being the money behind Project Wide Awake. Yeah, he kind of hangs out with like Henry Peter Gyrick. With Gyrick a lot. Going yeah. after the new mutants and being like, little does Gyrick know that I'm going to That I am over. a mutant. Right. Yeah. He even pops up in Captain Britain. Right over in Marvel UK in like the daredevils to be a representative of the U S government. There's, this is actually fun because it's a great example of, I was just talking about this in the forge episode last week, the way that the, the way that Jim Jaspers was supposed to factor hugely into Claremont's plots and then doesn't because of the legal dispute between Alan Moore and Marvel UK is that Shaw shows up in marvel uk specifically to fund and like finance jim jasper's address to the united kingdom about the evils of superhumans and the dangers of mutants and their evil powers which would have led in claremont's envisioning i imagine into the jim jasper's plot that was going to occur in uncanny x-men but that never comes to pass so instead we have mr sinister who is probably in the long run a more useful character given the event currently unfolding all around us which features sebastian shaw but yeah he he just kind of pops up around in things he's in an alpha flight story where Mm -hmm. his company sends some sentinels across the border and he's like wait 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 you can't do that that's violating international law which is a very like that could get me in trouble it's not that we've built genocide robots it's that they cross i don't have a moral issue manhattan into toronto and now i'm concerned right yeah exactly And then there is the plot where Emma and Storm body swap. Yes, that's always been one of the most disturbing Mm -hmm. plots to me. Because, like, Claremont did address that later in Revolutions or Extreme or something. But, like, the implication is that they had sex. Is that Shaw fucks Emma in Storm's body. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, like... Such a profound moral yeah. violation. It's just, ugh. It's been ignored by just about every writer since because if you want Emma to be at all a heroic character, you have to just pretend that did not happen. Right. And I think it's best that we just assume they did a couple kisses and moved on with their time. Right. Because it's just like, it doesn't serve any of them as characters. And it's just there to say... Shaw and Emma are irredeemably evil. In Claremont's mind, Emma Frost is the great villain of the X-Men and, like, should be evil as sin forever. And that's just not how the character evolved. So it doesn't quite work. But yes, that story is crazy. I read it at a young age and even then was like, that's wild to me. Storm in Emma's body ends up saving the day. Yeah, I think Shaw overloads himself and gets blasted. Mm-hmm. There's a great moment where the Sentinels are attacking and we see the secret base beneath the Hellfire Club where Shaw is commanding the Sentinels and Tessa's there in her little outfit. But all of the 
technicians in the security console station, like all of the people manning the Sentinels, are hot chicks in like yellow <laughs> unitards. And it's just very, it's very James Bond, right? But it's just like very funny right. to me the idea that Shaw exclusively employs like sexy female robotics experts to be his minions in this. Yeah, he must have a, a very active HR department. Yeah, like just really recruiting women in STEM right out of engineering <laughs> school. Um, so, you know. There you go. That, though, leads into, like, because that's Tessa being sort of a more active character suddenly. She had just been a background element, like he has this assistant who walks around. She then has a more substantial role in a Is that when part. the analysis? Kind like, of, yeah. When it's starts. like Tessa analyze and all of that, yeah. But when it really kicks into gear is, right after that, is the New Mutants graphic novel number four that introduces the new mutants and tessa and charles xavier are the two people captured by pierce when donald mm -hmm. pierce betrays the hellfire club and we find out that donald pierce fucking hates mutants which is not something we would expect from his work for sebastian shaw but listen sometimes money talks and you can work for a minority person without respecting his minority group yep. and this and, is a case and also of that. like you know let's not beat about the bush like, Sebastian Shaw inspires, like, animosity from other people. For sure. He is not a fun person to work with, let's say, right? So, Shaw is out cold after, yeah, getting overloaded in the battle and all of that. This is before New Mutants, I mean, to go back to the, to the Storm and Emma swap story. And while he's out, after the Hellfire Club's been totally routed the club and the X-Men declare a truce, which right. leads into the sort of casual detente that the groups then have up through. Yeah, that's the background of all the Selene stuff. Right, because then the Nimrod arc is when they officially declare a truce, but before that even, they're like, okay, we'll leave you alone if you leave us alone, and yada, yada, yada. Because they don't know that the Hellfire Club is funding Sentinels, to be fair. Like, right. Not, it's not, a, the, the direct connection's not 1,000% clear. Charles, because he feels for some reason that he can trust Tessa, which is one of the reasons that Claremont's Sage's retcon makes a lot of sense, gives Pierce to Tessa. She and Shaw imprison Pierce somewhere. Don't super worry about it. Then we have a couple more appearances that are a little bit more substantial in characterizing him in New Mutants. Yes. Especially, like, his relationship with, with Magneto. Mm-hmm. And with Sunspot. Yes. And Sunspot's dad. Yes. Like, that's the thing, is there's sort of an interesting dynamic set up. He keeps working on the burgeoning project Wide Awake, but early in New Mutants, like in the first couple issues, there is an argument between him and Gyrick when Gyrick wants to send the Sentinels after the New Mutants. And in a Shaw mall is, of all places. Mm -hmm, and Shaw is like, well, they can't be programmed to kill, though, because I don't want them to kill mutants. The whole point is that they will apprehend mutants and bring the mutants to us so that we can study them. Because Shaw's plan, just FYI, and why Shaw is funding Sentinels, is Shaw wants to have a monopoly on mutant power. Right. It's all about intellectual property. 
Right. So he believes that all mutants that exist should be either him or under his direct control. So the Sentinels are a way of apprehending any rogue mutant element and turning them into a Shaw Industries asset. The government doesn't quite see it that way, but they're using each other. And every now and then Gyrick will slip and let on that he super wants to kill all the mutants. Yep. And Shaw will be like, that's not what we talked about. Uh, like, you know, they're just like, oh, right. Yeah, no, of course. We're not going to kill anybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Shaw says, this is a thought bubble. Your plan, Henry, is about to backfire. I wish to make those children as paranoid as possible. Suspicious of everyone save their own kind, so that in time, once Xavier has been eliminated, when the Hellfire Club offers them sanctuary, they'll gladly accept. So that's his goal. It's not, you know, like people are like, how can you fund Sentinels as a mutant? It's like, because if you feel you control the Sentinels, then you can use them to control all other mutants. And if you don't have solidarity with other people in your oppressed class and just see them as an opportunity to get one over on the people less oppressed than you who you hate, that's a logical choice that might make sense to you. It super fits in with like how he operates in the Firestar mini. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you know, okay, like, how soon can you get me the useful asset? Because I want to kill Celine really bad. Yes. Before that is Nova Roma, where he appeals to Hiberta de Korshna's father, Emmanuel, to maybe become a member of the inner circle. Mm-hmm. Emma's in another coma because Mastermind attacked her after he came out of his coma. Don't super worry about it. He likes... DaCosta because they're both self-made guys who've become rich based on their own work. Right. DaCosta is a black Brazilian who has overcome a lot of adversity in Brazil to become this really cutthroat businessman. He asks Emmanuel to join the inner circle and Emmanuel's like, "Mm, I don't know, but maybe if you do a favor for me, my ex-wife. Right. I want her dead. (laughs) my ex-wife's an archaeologist and she's doing a thing in the amazon and i would like her eliminated because i'm worried that she's going to disrupt my holdings in the jungle the hellfire club completely fails to make any headway there and emmanuel's ex-wife and the new mutants end up discovering nova roma and celine who they apparently slay at the end of that story i I will say i i think it's a little bit later but I love this one moment with Emmanuel DaCosta where, like, DaCosta asks, is like, what's with all the 18th century clothes? Right. And Shaw goes on this long monologue about, like, you know, it was an earlier time where you didn't have to give a fuck about anybody and there was no taxes and no regulation. But it's such an insane thing to be saying to a black person, yes, right? Like- <laughs> exactly. It is. It is just like when... A couple years ago, a bunch of really prominent libertarians got in trouble for saying that 1895 was the freest year in America because there was no income tax and no federal regulation. Mm. And everyone jumped on that and was like, like, what about Jim Crow? Yeah, Jim Crow, no (laughs) votes for women. What the, like, free for who exactly? And it's like, Shaw is exactly the kind of guy who would be like, let me white-splain to you, black man, about Well, the- but, and that's very, like, no disrespect to the denizens of Pennsylvania who may be listening to this podcast, but that's very Rust Belt, right? Yeah, Like, to yeah. have that attitude. 
the new mutants also figure out though that emmanuel hired these people to try and kill his ex-wife which makes Huberto disown his father yes. and all great of that scene. dramatic stuff great scene Emmanuel calls up Shaw and is like, all right, fine, I'll be your, I think he's the white rook, right? That said, this whole adventure with the new mutants leads Shaw to realize that maybe Xavier has a good idea and I shouldn't wait around for his students to be vulnerable to me. And so he helps Emma set up the Massachusetts Academy and that's That's when the the Hellions are introduced. That's at the at the heart of their relationship. Yes, is he gives Emma a place where she can teach, and she loves it. And he doesn't give a shit about the kids except for, oh, you know, making no. use of them. Right. They're assets, and they're assets that he got to before Charles did, which is something he finds really appealing. Especially because over time, Claremont will retcon together all of these pre-existing relationships between Charles and Shaw that do not exist in these stories, but... Neither did Charles's relationship with Magneto. So, like, that's just right. something that Chris likes to do. That's stuff that happens later in Extreme when we find out about Tessa and Sage and all of that stuff. And it's like, oh, well, of course, Charles has to have known Shaw because otherwise, why would he embed Tessa at the Hellfire yeah, Club spot, with Shaw? Yeah. Anyway, the Hellions set up there. There's the whole thing with the Beyonder. And Shaw is mostly in the background for pretty much all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Then... Celine makes her arrival on the Manhattan scene. Go back to the Celine episode for more on these stories because I can't possibly relate them all to you again, but it is extremely funny that Sebastian is like, all right, so what can you do exactly? And she basically almost kills him right yeah, there. Yeah, she's like, I'm an immortal sorceress. and I can- <laughs> She's like, she waves an arm and like the ground beneath him turns into a fist and grabs him and chokes the life nearly out of him. <laughs> and she's like, would you care for a further demonstration, Yeah, Mr. he can't Shaw? deal with quicksand. No. That's the wrong kind of attack. He's fucked. By Hecate, he says, which that's actually an interesting... Yeah, there's a little bit of Pagan. There's a little bit of Pagan Hellfire Club stuff. By Hecate, most impressive, madam. And Tess is in the back going, shit, 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 shit. <laughs> and he goes, but you'll find Sebastian Shaw is not so easily caught. He breaks free from the rock prison, and then he thinks, or killed. Had I not broken free, I'd have been encased in stone and suffocated. My escape was a very near thing. I absorbed my strength from the kinetic energy of blows struck against me. The harder I'm hit, the more powerful I become. But Selene's was a passive attack, the kind most likely to defeat me. Was it a lucky coincidence, or does she know my weakness? Whichever, she's made her intentions plain. And she's sitting on his throne now, and she says, I took the liberty of repairing your throne, Sebastian. And sits on it as if it's already hers. As you have seen, I have absolute control over all forms of inorganic matter. Would you like a further demonstration? Thank you, no, this was quite sufficient. (laughs) And that's when she gives him her new brainwashed slaves, Magma and Rachel Summers, who had attempted to infiltrate the Hellfire Club to attack her because they hate Celine for reasons. (laughs) And Tessa is like, hey, uh- Use them to kill her. Do it now. Take those and use them to kill her. Because yeah, they're super powerful and uh, it doesn't super- work out unfortunately because the girls aren't under the best brainwashing control and the x-men show up and it all goes kind of pear-shaped that is when xavier is like hey we're supposed to have a truce thank you and everybody is just kind of like okay our bad our Our bad bad." you know it's like your girls attacked us you know which is a recurring theme here 
And every time it happens, it's either Charles or later Eric. My favorite is when Celine's just like, Rachel Summers tried to kill me. And Eric is like, no doubt with good reason, Celine. <laughs> like, you know, because he's met this woman and he knows she's bad news. But yeah, so Celine is in the inner circle now. She's named as the new Black Queen because of her priest, Friedrich von Roem, who is a member in good standing of the Hellfire Club, who nominates her. He stalks the blood scent. He is the dogman, iconic character who gets disintegrated by Nimrod and you don't have to worry about him, but good for him in his moment. Uh, does like an induction ceremony for Celine and DaCosta and Celine makes fun of it the whole time, which is really funny. To yeah, me. I mean, I imagine she's been <laughs> in what? Thousands of cults? Well, the idea, she's formed thousands of cults around yeah. her. She is worshipped as a goddess by people who exist on Earth. Friedrich von Rome is the descendant of her line of. So this is like weird in a heritable priesthood, her. right? Like, yeah. so yeah, no. And she's like, she, she goes, a pretty speech, Sebastian, a most charming little ceremony. And he goes, thank you, madam. And then thought, she's mocking me, the witch, challenging me in all but name. She wants my place at the head of the table and doesn't care if I know it. Who is she, really? Her sponsor, that fat fool from Rome, provided a dossier, but I'll wager it's false. Because, like, Celine Gallio is not a real person. (laughs) (laughs) All I know for certain is that her ambition matches my own, and she possesses superhuman abilities as formidable as mine. With Celine, I must be forever on my guard. The slightest misstep, I've no doubt, will be my last. This is fun, and it's unfortunate that whatever Claremont was planning for these characters never really comes to fruition, because Celine is Sebastian Shaw's worst nightmare. Right. She is a dominatrix who cannot be overpowered in any right. way. And she upends the whole misogynist structure of his Hellfire Club just by strolling in the door. And it makes him so aggy, which I find really funny. Yeah. Um, I mean, it does kind of play out in New Mutants a bit. Yes. First, there's the Firestar mini, where, as you note, Emma and Shaw attempt to brainwash Firestar into being their assassin against Selene, but that doesn't work out. And then, before New Mutants does tease that out a little bit more, there's the plot that we alluded to earlier, where Rachel tries to kill Selene, Wolverine guts Rachel, Rachel runs off into Central Park, and the Hellfire Club and the X-Men start fighting in Central Park. Shaw, in this story, wears a truly oh, insane terrible. outfit. It's like a purple onesie with an orange hair bow and electric green high opera gloves and thigh high boots the boots go all the way up practically to his groin it's a psycho look i appreciate a man in a thigh high moment but it's just the color scheme here is very (laughs) strange yeah the the colorist was was on a weird one Friedrich von Rome in this story looks like Ryu from Street Fighter. Like, everybody looks super weird. It's just John Romita just doing whatever the yeah. fuck he wants. Harry Leland puts a cape on. Yeah, like- Leland <laughs> looks like he's wearing a Halloween costume. He looks like who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. <laughs> the shadow knows, and so does Harry Leland, but no hat, you know? But, like, kind of that vibe. Anyway, while they're fighting the X-Men, the time-traveling Nimrod, Super Sentinel from the Days of Future Past, arrives, is also tracking Rachel, and attacks the group, and they all have to band together to fight it. 
Shaw is pretty confident about his power making him indestructible until Nimrod blasts him into space, like sends him literally hurtling out of Earth's atmosphere. The only way that Shaw survives is that Harry Leland uses his density mass control power to pull Sebastian back to Earth from orbit. Arguably killing him. It does. He has a heart attack and dies. And that's the death of Harry Leland. And again, their relationship has kind of a weird subtext to it where it's like, it's not mystique and destiny. Like they're certainly not in a relationship or anything. And I don't think there's always a woman in between them for plausible deniability. Right. But they definitely have the vibe of old Victorian gents who went to Eton together, you know, like even though Shaw did not go to Eton, it's that kind of energy to their relationship. And Leland does overexert himself and die saving Shaw's life. They are able to neutralize the Nimrod threat, and Tessa suggests to Storm that the X-Men hide out at the Hellfire Club, and that's what creates the real lasting truce between the X-Men and the Hellfire Club. As part of that, Shaw recruits Magneto to be White King, which Magneto accepts with the caveat that Storm will also be White King and it will be a seat that they share. Right. Because Magneto doesn't like 100% trust himself to make good decisions. He's only recently not evil, right? And Magneto and Storm have developed a deeper relationship at this point. It's like a burgeoning thing between them. Charles is off in space now, and Eric has a lot of respect. Well, Magnus, as he's called in these stories, Mm -hmm. has a lot of respect for Storm, which is what's paying real dividends now in the Al Ewing X-Men Red stuff that really Mm -hmm. has pulled out that beat that had been lost for quite some time but that is really essential to their dynamic in this era shaw's belief we get in thought bubbles and stuff is that having magneto and storm in the inner circle will help bring the x-men under his control that isn't really where it goes though because (laughs) there's a power struggle that pretty much immediately ensues that comes to a head during the inferno Mm-hmm. When the mansion is destroyed, Magneto and Shaw come to blows. There's a weird bit here, and this is because I think Wheezy's writing it instead of Chris. Yeah. Celine is weirdly cooperative with Shaw in these stories, and it's Emma who is yeah. really against him, and that doesn't feel correct to me. And also, Magneto is like weirdly not just super villainous, but like almost precognitive in like, you know, oh, I knew this and I was planning for this eventually. Well, that's classic Wheezy doing editorial work, right? Like she's an editor first before she is hired to write these comics. And there are two examples that happen right at this same time where she just does that. And I love her as a writer. I think that she catches a lot of flack for this period that she doesn't deserve 
of New Mutants, but there's two bits where it just simply, I'm like, I read those comics, Wheezy, and that's not what happened. And one of them is this with Magneto, and the other one is when she has Madeline be like, I've been evil all along right. in the end I of Inferno. I sabotaged your fight with Storm. Yeah, which is just not true, because we've yeah. read those comics and we read everyone's thought bubbles, and we just know that that's not true. In fact, we saw the first time that Maddie realized Jean Grey was alive, and we know exactly how she reacted to it, because it happened in the pages of Uncanny X-Men, and we read the comic. So, you know, there's just that moment where it's just her retconning things in a way that serves what editorial wanted to do with those characters. Right. Because at this point, Bob Harris is editing X-Men, and he wants Magneto to be a bad guy. Right. I, I do like the fact that, like, it all comes to a head in New Mutants 74 and 75. And, like, essentially, they're sort of saying to Emma and Celine, like, you gotta choose between us. And it's like, instantly, they're like, Magneto. Fuck they you. both pick Magneto. They're like, huge big dick Magneto, we're over you. Celine's like, I never really liked you to begin with. I mean, but it, you know, she's not like that, though, because, again, the story's a little weird. But Emma says to Celine, do you really think, like, Shaw will let you maintain your holdings in the Amazon jungle if he yada, yada, yada? And she's like, ooh, Nova Roma, that does matter to me. So, like, she just flips pretty handily. And then they both are just sort of, like, fawning over Magneto like a Frazetta painting, and <laughs> Shaw is banished from the Hellfire. Club. And Shaw goes immediately to the Nimrod. Angle, yes, where he's he like, "All right, <laughs> you know, you want to fuck me? I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna fuck you right back." So he goes to Senator Kelly and is like, "Hey, I want to launch the Hunter Project that we had talked about." Now, Nimrod. For people who are familiar or unfamiliar, is the mighty hunter of the Bible. It became known as a word for a stupid person because of Bugs Bunny cartoons, but that's a misunderstanding. (laughs) It's because Bugs ironically calls Elmer Fudd Nimrod as a joke about how Elmer Fudd is not a good hunter because Nimrod is the greatest hunter. It's like calling him Orion. Right. Well, I do think that Hickman has done a good job of reestablishing Nimrod as a scary thing in a good way, even though he does look like a big, cute marshmallow now, the way that most people draw him. Yes, much less blocky. Senator Kelly is like, how can you be sure you'll be able to control it? Because Shaw's proposal for this hunter program is right now the Sentinels that we've created in the past kind of suck. They're programmed specifically with knowledge of, like, for example, in the Stephen Lang arc, they know Jean as Marvel Girl, and they are, this is right before she becomes Phoenix, but they're not anticipating that her powers are much stronger than right. they were when she fought them in the 60s. They don't adapt. They don't realize that Chris Claremont is writing this woman now, <laughs> and so her powers matter. And so she kicks a sentinel's ass, and they're like, correcting, correcting, or whatever. And they can't learn as easily on the job. So Shaw's proposal for this new project that will eventually create the Nimrods in the future is we need a Sentinel who can, first of all, regenerate itself if they blow it up, but second of all, can also analyze mutants on the fly and discern their powers in combat and use artificial intelligence algorithms and whatnot. (laughs) Yeah, Shaw's super into chat GPT. Exactly. Kelly's like, okay, but if we make a perfect, indestructible, and endlessly adaptable robot, what happens if it decides humans should die? In fact, predicting Jonathan Hickman's Inferno 2021. Say this for Kelly. 
he may have this strong tendency to like great replacement theory pseudoscience. He's at least consistent. Yeah, and he's savvy. He yeah. he knows what he speaks of a lot of the time. And listen, did the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants attempt to assassinate him? Yes. Like that was not not something that was going to happen. So, you know, he's a complicated guy. What's less complicated is what happens next, which is that his wife Sharon is killed by Nimrod during a fight with the X-Men, and Shaw is able to blame it on the X-Men, which compels Kelly to approve, ironically, the project that will lead to the future creation of the time-traveling Nimrod. So very self-fulfilling prophecy kind yep, of good shit. Stuff. Good stuff. R.A.P. Sharon Kelly, she's a real one. Then there's a very, very weird period where Shaw is a recurring villain in Spider-Man. Yes. Because he's out of the Hellfire Club, so he's not in the X-Men storylines. What is it? It's it's the whole villain, villain swap em up. Yeah. There's like a bunch of villains who are working together. Uh, uh, Acts of Vengeance. Yes. I think, right? Is what it's called? Yes. This is not a Spider-Man like, podcast. Switch but... partners. Yeah, it's like everybody tag out and like fight somebody new for one. Yeah, at one point he he sends somebody after the Hulk. Yes. It's well, he random. well, he he <laughs> he uh, figures out that the people who've hired him to fight Spider-Man include like through a shell company Magneto and so he decides it must be a setup so he hires the Hulk and like outsources it to the Hulk it's this is all game playing on a level that is certainly too complex for the Hulk to understand and probably too complex for me to understand as someone who, I'm going to be real, skimmed through Amazing Spider-Man 328 and 329 right. and was it's, not it's, like... It's a weird super... storyline. Like, it's got Captain Universe stuff. Spider-Man is Captain Universe at that time. Loki ends up fusing a bunch of experimental sentinels like from the Nimrod development project into a tri-sentinel, which is also... I'm like, is that where Hickman got the Tri-Sentinel in I Powers think, of Ten? I think so. Maybe. Which, like, this is the thing about Jonathan Hickman. God love him for pulling out a reference to the Sebastian Shaw story in Amazing Spider-Man 329, which would not be my first thought if I was writing a big X-Men crossover. The Tri-Sentinel gets destroyed, and it's... A moment where Shaw realizes that he almost lost control of the situation, but in the end, he doesn't lose control of the situation because Spider-Man destroys the Tri-Sentinel, so it all turns out okay. Before, where does the classic, this is, I think we've moved too far ahead, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Classic X-Men. Yes. Okay. So the Lordis story, that, that story we were just talking about is 1990, and the Lordis Chantel backup is a couple years before that. Yeah, 87. In 87. And this is important. I've talked about it on the show before, but Lordis is important because this great sin of Shaw's helps to explain his behavior retroactively a little bit. The only other mutant he cared about was Lourdes when she is killed by the Sentinels that were sent by Buckman after she was like, hey, Sebastian, I don't think we should work with Buckman on Sentinels. Yeah. He has to then be all in, right? So right. he kills Buckman and Seville with Emma's help 
and Tess's help, and they slaughter all the humans at the Hellfire Club and seize control of the Hellfire Club. But now it's a sunk cost fallacy, right? It's like now we have to perfect the Sentinels because if we don't, then it's my fault that Lordis is exactly. dead because I funded I them in the wrong. first place. Right. There's also a really key moment in that backup, which this is, it's classic X-Men 7, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Which was reprinted in Marauders as yep. part of the first Hellfire Gala. It's incredible art by John Bolton and just a gorgeous piece. The big thing that I just want to point out is that there is a moment where he grabs Lourdes by the throat because yes. she's questioning him. There were people who, when Jerry expanded on that relationship and established that Shaw hitting Lourdes was something that happened on a couple different occasions, people were like, where did that come from? And like, well, it, it comes from yeah. that story where he does physically assault yeah, her. Yeah, it's so, totally in character. Yeah, it's, it's right there. And at the same time, and this is what I think is interesting about him as a character and about the way Claremont writes him, is... He does love Lourdes. Mm. He's just an abusive guy. Right. It's not to suggest he doesn't care about her or that her death does not completely devastate him, but he also was abusing her. And what does that mean? It's a level of gray in a relationship and in a character that is unusual for a superhero comic because we are clearly meant to buy into their relationship, but we are also meant to be appalled by the way he treats her. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking of, like, various sort of, like, literary parallels going into this. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, you know, American tragedy, Shaw absolutely would have drowned his wife in a lake to, to remarry. Sure. You know, someone, he's got a little bit of Bill Sykes in him. Mm. It is very noticeable that, like, his grief is packaged in this, like, melodrama where it's, like, all about him. Yeah, I mean, I was actually going to, if I was going to make a literary reference here, I think Lourdes Chantel is very Esmeralda, Victor Hugo. Mm -hmm. Like, she's this exotic, she's a Spaniard, so she's not right. like a person of color, or she's not Romani, like Esmeralda in Hunchback of Notre Dame. But it's that same exotic, to an American from Pittsburgh, Lourdes Chantel is extremely right. exotic, right? She's from Barcelona, and she's... Right, she's Catalan. Right. Yes, and she's wearing for the Hellfire Gala in this backup, this more traditional like Queen Isabella of Spain, but mm -hmm. sexed up kind of costume. It's definitely like the spicy Latin lover who he is obsessed with possessing and controlling right. at the same time that she is his muse. Yeah. Right. And she's very useful to him as a well, Because teleporter. she's a teleporter. That's the thing also for people not familiar with this backup. Lourdes is a teleporter more powerful than Kurt. It's more like Ilyana. She can take you right. long distances, but... If she makes a blind jump, like Kurt, if she goes just sort of blindly without being able to see where she's right, going, it's dangerous. it's dangerous. And so she ends up harpooned by a sentinel because Ned Buckman, the White King, has betrayed them and sent the sentinels that they all funded together to eliminate Shaw and Tessa and Emma and Leland and Lourdes as the mutant members of the Hellfire Club so that he can secure right. power. And Michael Rossi carol's bow from the cia yes who lang tried to kill back in that arc i bring up the duality of the shaw and lordis relationship 
Because as much as Claremont is interested in mind control, brainwashing, BDSM, non-consensual like bondage right. and sadomasochism yeah. as opposed to like healthy BDSM, there's nothing valorized about it. The characters like Shaw and the Shadow King who violate the best practices of BDSM mm -hmm. or Emma, as Claremont writes her, are unquestionably evil characters. Right. We are given this moment that humanizes him, but at the same time, we see that it doesn't make him a good person. Because even right. this woman who he loves more than anything, he will throttle if she questions him. Right. And he learns nothing from it. Right. Learns not a thing. She wanted him to leave the Hellfire Club, and he decides in her memory to rename the inner circle of the Hellfire Club after her initials. <laughs> it's like, my guy, she wanted you to quit because she thought it was making you a bad person, which, you know, I think he already was, but she had rose-colored yeah. glasses on. It's similar in that way to Emma's relationship with the Hellions, which does humanize her as well, but I don't think is ever meant in Claremont to disabuse us of the notion that she's evil. Yes. The idea that villains can have these attachments that are genuine, but that Emma can be manipulating the Hellions yeah. or Shaw can be abusing Lourdes, even if they do love these people yeah. in whatever sense. Yeah, she's a devoted teacher, but she's still like... Her methods are incredible. Questionable, yeah. Fucked up. And everything with empath is dark. <laughs> and he learned it from watching her, you know? <laughs> so yeah. it's very that. So that is the the classic in 87, which I'm sorry, I just like totally didn't do that in sequence properly. And then I realized I was like, wait, we have to, because we'd already talked about it a little. And I was like, wait, mm -hmm. we have to go back and do that. So now to get back after the Amazing Spider-Man story in 1990, his next big appearance is in X Factor 67. This is an issue. I like this one. Partly written by Chris Claremont. Mm-hmm. Because Claremont is brought in after Wheezy has been deposed and is tasked with scripting the storyline where Nathan Christopher Summers, the baby, is sent to the future with the Ascani sister and all of that stuff with Apocalypse. And in this story, a B-plot is that Shaw is on vacation at his ski chalet in Switzerland and he is attacked well, first, he discovers that there's been a hostile takeover of yeah, Shaw Industries while he gone. wasn't paying attention, which is very funny because he's like, how can this be? And the answer is because you've been replaced by a character Claremont is now interested in writing for the two minutes that Claremont is still on this franchise in this 16-year run. Shinobi Shaw, his half-Japanese son, who is one of the upstarts initially in Claremont's notes called The Wild Boys in reference to the novel by William S. Burroughs about a group of young homosexual anarchists. But by the time it reaches the page, it's the upstarts. They're all very effeminate, though, and have sort of yes. a dangerous queer sexuality to them. And Shinobi's no exception. Shinobi is also a culmination of all Claremont's interest in the Japanese samurai movie, the right. Hong Kong action movie. The Yakuza movie. Exactly. All the stuff he's been doing in Marvel Japan, in Madripoor, in Marvel Asia generally. 
a shinobi for people who are not weebs to the extent that Chris Claremont already was in 1990 is another word for a ninja. And there was the very famous 87 video game shinobi. Yes. Which is where he probably got it. Probably. Or honestly, like they probably say it at some point in Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, so or in in one of the adaptations of that or in like a Zatoichi movie or something like he was Mm -hmm. definitely in the like subtitled VHS tapes world that my dad was also operating in at that time. Anyway, Shinobi shows up and in this very first issue, well, first Shinobi reveals that he has launched the hostile takeover because the upstarts are sort of a critique of Gen X, the generation. They are a bunch of Nepo babies. Yep seizing control through violence and subterfuge of these institutions of power. So it's the Fenris twins who are Baron von Strucker's children. It's Fabian Cortez who comes from a long line going back to the conquistadors. It's Trevor Fitzroy later who Claremont doesn't introduce, but who comes in later, who's like from the future. So he doesn't quite fit Claremont's idea, but the other characters are Shinobi Shaw and Zaladane, who doesn't actually get to join because Claremont leaves the book. But she is like an upstart in the sense of seizing the high evolutionary space, seizing control of the savage land from the fall people. Taking Polaris's powers. Yeah. I get, claiming I'm taking this power because it's our family's power and I'm stealing it from you and all of that. And there is a certain nihilism to all of these characters mm-hmm. that is is different from like Shaw and Emma and even Celine are building things and the upstarts exist to destroy because yeah, it's, and it's fun. just for points. Yes. It's just for the game. And so Shinobi, who is Sebastian's bastard son who hates him. Right. Because he has not, uh, let's just say the implication here that will be borne out by later stories is that Shaw was not the most nurturing father. Shinobi has recently manifested a mutant power of his own, which is, interestingly, a Kitty Pride style control over his personal density. Yeah. And in this first appearance, X Factor 67, As he is murdering his father by shoving (laughs) his hand into Sebastian's chest to create a heart attack, he says, geez, that must hurt. Speaking of which, do you think that since my powers are so much more like my uncle Leland's, that you're not my real daddy? I'll kill you for this. I rather doubt that, daddy-o. And kills Sebastian and then the chalet explodes. Right. Big bomb. Big bomb and Shinobi, who stepped out of phase for a moment, just walks out like, haha, I have triumphed. It's a great introduction. This sets the stage for Shinobi to be a huge villain going forward. Unfortunately, he just isn't. Like, right. he's around for a minute, but he never super goes anywhere or matters. And it's just kind of an anticlimactic thing after this great initial introduction, because Claremont's only on the books for a couple more months, and the later writers just didn't seem as interested in Shinobi as Claremont had been. I think now is a good time for us to do the Cerebro character file on Sebastian Shaw because he's going to be dead for a couple years now. I will take you through his complete publication history from the Dark Phoenix Saga up through Sins of Sinister 
well, not all of it, but the first issue that's out now. Then we will come back for more with Dr. Stephen Adewell. We will talk about Shaw's stories in the 90s and beyond. They're mostly not very good, so we're going to speed right through them and then get to the Mike Carey one, which is great, and then get to your questions, questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Sebastian Hiram Shaw, best known as the Black King or Lord Imperial of the Hellfire Club, is one of the most significant villains in the X-Men franchise. Created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, he is a billionaire industrialist who for many years conceals his own mutant status while manipulating the mutant struggle for profit. After a tumultuous character history, he now serves as part of the Quiet Council on Krakoa, working in tandem with the heroes he fought for so many years. Shaw makes his debut in 1979's X-Men 129, God Save the Child, also the first appearance of Kitty Pride and Emma Frost. He's the leader of the Hellfire Club, a kinky secret society for the wealthy in Manhattan that conceals an inner circle of mutant supervillains, the Lord's Cardinal. By this point, the Hellfire Club has already launched two operations to subvert the X-Men, first sending an agent to hijack cerebro-mutant scan readouts, and then dispatching their associate Jason Wingard, the illusionist mastermind, to brainwash Jean Grey, aka Phoenix, into serving the club. Shaw sends Emma Frost, his white queen, to recruit Kitty Pride, a newly emerged mutant registered by Cerebro. Emma's defeated by Phoenix, however, and left comatose. The X-Men then infiltrate the club itself, where they prove unprepared to face the remaining inner circle. The cyborg white bishop, Donald Pierce, the density-controlling black bishop, Harry Leland, and the black king himself. Shaw's mutant power to absorb kinetic energy on contact makes him indestructible and super strong, and he's able to defeat Storm and Colossus, two of the strongest X-Men, single-handedly. The X-Men are horrified when Mastermind is able to fully subvert Jean Grey, transforming her into the wicked Black Queen. The only team member to escape is Wolverine, who's able to help the rest get out. Shaw escapes via the sewers, while Jean breaks free from her brainwashing, but immediately becomes the genocidal Dark Phoenix. While the Dark Phoenix saga is unfolding, Shaw accuses the X-Men of an unwarranted attack on his club and meets with his close friend, Senator Robert Kelly. Shaw suggests to Kelly that they reestablish the Sentinel Development Program in a new form as Project Wide Awake. The following year, we see the President of the United States approve this plan, with security official Henry Peter Gyrick placed in charge. Shaw Industries will produce the Sentinels, allowing Shaw to turn a healthy profit while also ensuring the robots do not recognize him as a secret mutant. In Uncanny X-Men 151, Shaw and Emma launch a scheme to infiltrate the X-Men by telepathically switching Emma's mind with that of Storm. Emma in Storm's body is able to aid Shaw's new sentinels in capturing the X-Men, but their plans are foiled by Storm in Emma's body. Shaw is critically injured in the battle that follows, and the Lord's Cardinal make a truce with the X-Men in his absence. Shortly thereafter, Donald Pierce betrays the club, revealing himself to be an anti-mutant bigot. Charles Xavier and the newly formed New Mutants cooperate with Shaw's closest confidant, his assistant and lover Tessa, a telepathic mutant with a mind like a computer, to take Pierce into Hellfire custody. Shaw then begins recurring in the New Mutants ongoing title, where we see him working with Gyrick on Project Wide Awake. He's furious when Gyrick attempts to use lethal sentinel force against the mutant teenagers, as Shaw only intended for his sentinels to capture mutants for study. Meanwhile, he begins pursuing team member Sunspot's father, corrupt Brazilian businessman Emmanuel de Corsta, to join the Lord's Cardinal. In exchange, Emmanuel asks Shaw to kidnap his ex-wife Nina, an archaeologist who's at the time traveling in the Amazon with the New Mutants. The operation fails, which Shaw blames on Emmanuel's insistence the agents not physically harm Nina or their son. When Sunspot discovers his father's role in the attacks, he disowns him, and Emmanuel retaliates by accepting Shaw's offer and becoming the Hellfire Club's new White Rook. I realize in the conversation you just heard when we were talking about this storyline, we said that Emmanuel also wanted Nina dead, but I just looked back over those issues and realized we were wrong. My apologies to Senor Takorsta. 
Back in the pages of Uncanny X-Men, Shaw is disquieted by the arrival of Selene, who applies for the vacant position of Black Queen and easily wins the role. The immortal mutant sorceress makes no secret of her ambition to seize Shaw's power for herself, and Shaw spends the next several years trying to figure out a way to kill her. This leads into the 1986 miniseries Firestar, in which Shaw and Emma recruit the titular character to their own class of students, the Hellions, and manipulate her to serve as an assassin. It doesn't work out, but this is not a Firestar episode. Stay tuned. Back in Uncanny, when Rachel Summers attacks the club in an attempt to kill Selene herself and leaves grievously injured, the Inner Circle pursues her into Central Park. They battle the X-Men, but the fight is interrupted by the arrival of Nimrod, a time-traveling super-sentinel from the future who's also seeking Rachel. The X-Men and the Hellfire Club come together to battle Nimrod, who sends Shaw skyrocketing into Earth's upper atmosphere to his inevitable death. He's rescued by his friend Harry Leland, who overloads his own power to pull Shaw back down to Earth. The strain, unfortunately, causes Leland to have a fatal heart attack. At Tessa's suggestion, the surviving Lords Cardinal and X-Men make a formal truce and retreat to the club to lick their wounds. Shortly thereafter, Shaw invites Magneto, by this point the headmaster of the Xavier School, to join the club as White King. In 1987's Classic X-Men number 7, the backup story Out with the Old by Chris Claremont and John Bolton establishes Shaw's activities a few years before his first appearance. This story firmly establishes a retcon that the Council of the Chosen, the secret society that funded Stephen Lang's Sentinel experiments, was actually the previous iteration of the Hellfire Club's inner circle under human regnants Ned Buckman and Paris Seville. Shaw's lover, the Spanish mutant teleporter Lourdes Chantel, is distrustful of Buckman, whom she can tell disdains mutants, and disdains Shaw for his working-class birth. She implores Shaw to reconsider aiding Buckman in funding the Sentinels, but Shaw does not listen. Instead, he throttles Lourdes physically for questioning him. Shaw believes Buckman shares his goal to use the Sentinels to study mutants for financial exploitation, not to exterminate the species. It turns out Lourdes was correct, and when Buckman sticks the Sentinels on Emma and Leland, Lourdes is mortally wounded, saving Shaw from a harpoon blast. Shaw, Emma, Leland, and Tessa then returned to the club and slaughtered Buckman, Seville, and their loyalists, seizing control of the Hellfire Club. Shaw renamed the Council of the Chosen the Lord's Cardinal, in honor of Lourdes Chantel. Back in the present, after some consideration, Magneto accepts Shaw's offer on the condition that the X-Men's leader Storm be appointed alongside him to share the title of White King. Not long afterward, though, the X-Men and their friend Madeline Pryor are killed in Dallas while saving the world from the cosmic being called the Adversary in the 1988 franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants. The loss of Storm and her team, combined with the death of his student Doug Ramsey, sends Magneto into a tailspin that makes him spend more and more time with the Hellfire Club. After the franchise-wide event Inferno, in which the Xavier Mansion is destroyed by Mr. Sinister, the two kings come to blows in New Mutants, now written by Louise Simonson, with Shaw declaring Magneto useless while Magneto decries Shaw for his involvement with the Sentinel program. Unfortunately for Shaw, Emma and Selene side with Magneto and vote to expel him from his own inner circle. Magneto becomes the Grey King, ruler of both colors in the club, and Shaw swears vengeance. Back in Uncanny, Shaw meets with Senator Kelly, seeking to double down on a new Sentinel project, the Hunter Program. Shaw suggests that this new Sentinel needs to be adaptive and able to learn by fighting emerging mutants, as well as bearing the capacity for regeneration. Kelly's skeptical that such technology would be safe to create, but changes his mind when his wife Sharon is killed in the crossfire during a battle between Nimrod and the X-Men. Neither man realizes that the eventual future result of their Hunter Program will be the Nimrod Sentinel that has caused them such grief. 
The following year, Shaw appears in a two-issue Spider-Man story as part of the company-wide event Acts of Vengeance, but this is not a Spider-Man podcast. He next appears a year later in 1991's X-Factor 67, co-written by Chris Claremont shortly before his departure from the franchise. In this story, Shaw is shocked to discover he's lost control of his company. The hostile takeover, it turns out, was orchestrated by his half-Japanese son, Shinobi, a new character who's a prominent figure in the East Asian underworld. Shinobi murders his father, taunting him by suggesting that, as Shinobi's newly awakened mutant power over density is eerily similar to the late Harry Leland's. Perhaps Shaw was cuckolded by Shinobi's mother. Four years later, after the Shinobi character failed to achieve significant traction in the franchise, Sebastian Shaw returns in the pages of Jeff Loeb's X-Force. He's reunited with Tessa, and the only visible marker of his apparent death is a prominent new scar over his eye. Shaw and Tessa conspire with the villain Holocaust to capture and brainwash X-Force, the former New Mutants, but their plan fails thanks to intervention by X-Force's mentor Cable. Shaw then begins recurring in a B-plot in X-Man, written by Terry Cavanaugh, where he's approached by Celine to restart the Hellfire Club. She introduces him to her new student, the amnesiac Madeline Pryor, who is somehow able to heal the scar on Shaw's face. This sparks a sexual connection between them that blossoms into a romantic relationship, setting both Celine and Tessa on edge. Shaw exits the X-Man narrative when Tessa accidentally restores Madeline's memories, sending the enraged former Goblin Queen on a different path. Shaw and Madeline's relationship, however, catches the eye of tabloid reporter Irene Merriweather, who begins investigating Shaw and his holdings. She then becomes the only survivor of the tabloid's newsroom when Donald Pierce, in an effort to impress Shaw and reclaim his own status in the Hellfire Club, puts out a hit on her and her colleagues. Shaw's next move is an attempt to profit off a potential cure for the legacy virus, but he's stopped by Storm. Over in James Robinson's run on the Cable solo, Shaw begins working with the time traveler Chever, don't worry about it, who promises that awakening the immortal mutant Apocalypse will bring Shaw greater power. They travel with Donald Pierce to Apocalypse's resting place in the Swiss Alps, where they end up battling Cable. The failure of this operation compels Shaw to cut ties with Pierce for good. Shaw then appears in the series X-51 Machine Man, but this is not a Machine Man podcast. Around the same time, the 1999-2000 miniseries X-Men Hellfire Club by Ben Robb establishes the history of the titular club and the Shaw family. Irene Merriweather has continued to investigate Shaw, so he kidnaps her and has Tessa tell her everything she wants to know via telepathy. We learn that Shaw's wealthy father escaped London after conspiring with Mr. Sinister to murder his own brother in an attempt to seize power in the Hellfire Club. Fleeing to America penniless, he became a coal miner outside Pittsburgh, and Shaw grew up working class. After he secures a scholarship to the prestigious Stevens Institute to study engineering, Sebastian's attacked by a group of wealthy students who resent his attempts at social mobility. His mutant power manifests during the fight, making him indestructible and allowing him to battle all the men at once. We see Shaw's entry into Buckman's Hellfire Club and the development of his relationship with Lourdes, including his proposal of marriage to her shortly before her death. In the present, Shaw confronts Irene Merriweather and tells her she'll never be allowed to publish her story, as he'll buy out any publisher she attempts to contact. He offers her membership in the Inner Circle in exchange for her compliance, but she refuses and contacts J. Jonah Jameson in an ultimately futile effort to get the whole story to the press. In Chris Claremont's 2001 series Extreme X-Men, Tessa, now calling herself Sage, has left Shaw to join the X-Men during a six-month time jump. Shaw hires Reagan Wingard, the Wicked Lady Mastermind, in a failed effort to brainwash Tessa back into his service. We learn that as a teenager, Tessa was recruited by Charles Xavier and sent to the Hellfire Club to act as his eyes and ears on Sebastian Shaw. The revelation of this betrayal by one of the only people he trusted upset Shaw enormously. Late in the run of Extreme X-Men, we get more details on the dissolution of Shaw and Tessa's partnership. She was kidnapped during the six-month gap by Elias Bogan, a secret power broker behind the Hellfire Club who had once been embarrassed by Shaw in a high-stakes poker game, a game Shaw won by having Tessa use her mutant brain to cheat. 
Bogan tortured Tessa, branding her with tattoos on her face, and offered to ransom her back to Shaw in exchange for his entire fortune. When Shaw refused, Tessa was left to her suffering until she was rescued by Storm, and immediately declared her new allegiance to the X-Men. As Claremont moves back to Uncanny X-Men, Shaw forges a new alliance with the mysterious Courtney Ross. Probably, actually, the interdimensional dictator Opalun Satyr 9, but don't worry about that right now. And he names her the new White Queen. After re-establishing the club, Shaw extends invitations to Sunspot, Emma Frost, and Sage to join him, claiming he's turned over a new leaf and wants to help other mutants by fighting mutant human trafficking operations. To the X-Men's surprise, Sage accepts his offer and returns to his side. But when Donald Pierce attacks the meeting, it becomes clear she got into the position in order to manipulate Shaw. Shaw is brutally injured, defeating Pierce, and Sage gives Sunspot the title of Lord Imperial in his place. Shaw curses Sage for yet another betrayal, but she tells him she would have served him loyally if he had not been so single-minded in his pursuit of power above all things. She reminds him that it was he who named her Tessa in the first place, which doesn't track with the earlier flashback where Xavier calls her Tessa as a teenager, but whatever. When the decimation depowers all but about 200 mutants worldwide, Shaw is one of the few to retain his mutant gifts. Under new writer Mike Carey, Shaw is frustrated by his subordinate position to Sunspot at the club. When the death of Mr. Sinister in the franchise-wide event Messiah Complex causes a machine in Shaw's possession to violently react, Shaw begins investigating the origins of the device, part of Project Cronus and entrusted to him by his late father. It turns out Sinister has a failsafe in the event of his death. He'd experimented on several children at the Black Womb Project in Alamogordo, New Mexico, with his associate Amanda Mueller, including Charles Xavier, Kane Marco, Alexander Reiking, and Sebastian Shaw. It was Shaw's father who had assembled the Black Womb scientists for Sinister in the first place. Upon Sinister's death, programming within his former test subjects begins attempting to transform them into a new host for Sinister's power and his consciousness. Shaw has been protected by his father's machine, and tracks Xavier and Gambit as they too investigate the situation. The three come face to face with Amanda Mueller, the Black Womb, who aims to seize the power of Sinister for herself, but Xavier is able to purge Sinister's astral presence from his mind, and Shaw destroys the Cronus device, crippling the failsafe. After he returns home, having made some measure of peace with Xavier, he's surprised by Claudine Renko, a separate failsafe Sinister had prepared, who's now become Sinisterized herself and taken the name Miss Sinister. Shaw makes her his new Black Queen. After Sunspot resigns from the Hellfire Club, several members attempt to seize the position of Lord Imperial in the power vacuum. Shaw decides to up his chances by brainwashing Wolverine's evil son Dakin into his personal assassin with the telepathic aid of Miss Sinister. This does not work out, and both Shaw and Claudine barely escape with their lives. In the 2009 Uncanny X-Men Annual, written by Matt Fraction, we get a curious retcon flashback to Shaw and Emma's villainous days together in the Hellfire Club. In this story, the role of Tessa is filled by Celine, who couldn't have been at the club at the time, so this is presumably a mistake. Shaw and Emma conspire to recruit Namor the Submariner as White King, but Namor rejects him. Shaw sends Emma to avenge this insult, but Emma is charmed by Namor and goes AWOL, engaging in a two-week undersea sexcapade instead. When Shaw dispatches Sentinels to rescue her, many Atlanteans are killed. In this story, Emma's horrified to discover Shaw's working on the Sentinels, and Shaw has Celine, again, presumably intended to be Tessa, alter her memories. Back in the present, in the same issue, Emma reaches out to Shaw as part of the Dark Reign, in which she's now posing as a villainous member of Norman Osborn's Cabal. Shaw's excited to see Emma back to her old ways, and isn't expecting her to telepathically immobilize him so she can execute him before Namor's eyes to avenge the dead of Atlantis. In reality, she's shown Namor an illusion, and she locks Shaw in the brig beneath Cyclops' base Utopia. Emma explains to Shaw that she holds him responsible for the genocide of Genosha due to his funding of the Sentinels, and subjects him to endless psychic torment as he experiences the dying moments of her students who perished there. 
In the 2009 franchise-wide event Necrotia, Shaw makes a brief appearance in the Brig, where he has to fight off some of Selene's reanimated mutant soldiers. In this case, the two sent to take out Shaw are his friend Harry Leland and his son Shinobi. We're informed Sebastian personally killed Shinobi at some point off-panel. Shaw is able to defeat zombie Leland and zombie Shinobi with the help of the Warden of the Brig, the artificial intelligence Danger. Eventually, Emma decides she can't continue to hide Shaw's survival from Namor. Unwilling to execute him outright because of her loyalty to the heroic X-Men, Emma takes him to China, where he briefly fights his way free. After recapturing him, Emma decides to completely wipe his memories and give him a chance to be a self-made man all over again. She leaves him behind with no resources in rural China. Two years later, when new writer James Asmus takes over the title Generation Hope, Hope Summers and her allies rescue Shaw from Jin Billion, a war profiteer who's employed him as an unkillable suicide bomber. Shaw had agreed to this because Jin lied to him about the cause of his amnesia. The revelation that Jin was simply manipulating him enrages him into killing his new master. Hope offers Shaw amnesty on Utopia, which horrifies Cyclops and Emma. They throw Shaw back in the brig, and Hope, confused by the whole affair, reads up on his history. After Shaw protects Hope from a mind-controlled Emma, Hope gives Shaw the file to read himself. He's disgusted to learn of the man he once was, but decides to atone by serving with Hope's heroic team. This leads into the Avengers vs. X-Men company-wide event, in which Shaw, who is technically a student on Utopia despite his age, is one of the students remanded to the custody of the Avengers. When the students are freed, the Avengers are convinced to let Shaw go, because he's not the same person they've fought in the past. They assure him they will come down on him hard if he returns to his old ways, and he swims away to parts unknown. Several years later, under new writer Cullen Bunn, Shaw returns in the pages of Uncanny X-Men, restored to his prior personality, memories, and status in the Hellfire Club without explanation. This is the Inhumans vs. X-Men era and Shaw aligns the Hellfire Club with the X-Men to fight the Mpox situation. Do not worry about this or about Secret Empire which follows it. In Bun's X-Men Blue, Shaw conspires with Miss Sinister, Emma, Bastion, and Evil Havoc, go back to the Havoc episode, to use a nanovirus called Mothervine to artificially reverse the decimation. Do not worry about Mothervine. Shaw tests it on himself and develops a new secondary mutation, but it proves deeply unstable and his body is devastated. He's healed up somewhat by the 2018 one-shot X-Men Black Emma Frost by Leah Williams and Chris Bocciolo, in which Emma successfully seizes control of the Hellfire Club and declares herself Black King. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Emma's frustrated when Xavier and Magneto approach her about the Krakoan experiment and ask her to bring Shaw back into the fold. They need to be able to subdivide the sale of the new miraculous Krakoan pharmaceuticals. Emma will handle the legal sales, while Shaw will monitor the black market. In the ongoing series Marauders, written by Jerry Duggan, Emma ensures she has the upper hand by arranging for the Hellfire Trading Company to have three seats on the Quiet Council of Krakoa, white, red, and black, each with one monarch. While Shaw intends to seat his resurrected son Shinobi as Red King, Emma's able to name Kate Pride Red Queen instead. Irate at his new situation, Shaw schemes to get rid of Kate, conspiring with the anti-mutant bigots Hominus Verendi, who have seized control of Madripoor. He successfully murders Kate, who ostensibly cannot be resurrected due to her powers interfering with the Krakoan process, and pays off Verendi and their associate Donald Pierce with an illicit shipment of Krakoan drugs. These drugs, adulterated with poison, are nearly released into the open market, which would have devastated Krakoa's professional reputation, but Emma is able to salvage the situation thanks to a tip from the CIA. When Kate is restored to life, she and Emma use the poisoned drugs and a version of Forge's neutralizer gun to cripple Shaw and force him into compliance. Powerless and unable to walk, he spends his time reflecting on his past ambitions and bemoans to Emma that Lourdes Chantel died before Cerebro began backing up mutant psyches. It is then that Emma reveals in a retcon that Lourdes never died in the first place. In fact, she had come to Emma for help when Shaw's physical abuse of her escalated. Lourdes' tragic death was a telepathic illusion Emma worked, taking the convenient opportunity of the Sentinel attack. 
Lourdes was then brought to the kingpin, Emma's sometime employer, who took her on as his personal teleporter. This revelation does seem to trigger some reflection in Shaw, who begins cooperating with Emma of his own free will, which compels Emma to restore his powers and his physical ability. The two organize the resurrection of their old friend Harry Leland, who's named Krakoa's ambassador to the United Nations. Shaw reveals to Leland and Shinobi that Leland is indeed Shinobi's biological father, but that both men had adored Shinobi's late mother, and Shaw had not hesitated to claim the child when she could not care for him. As Duggan's Marauder series comes to a close, Emma decides to bring Lourdes to Krakoa now that Shaw knows the truth. Shaw begs Lourdes to forgive him, but she has no interest in rekindling their romance. Instead, she asks to be named Black Queen and be given his seat of power in Hellfire Trading. To her surprise, Shaw immediately accepts, asking only that she keep Shinobi in her employ. Privately, he begins manipulating them against each other, so he's changed, but not that much. In Kieran Gillen's Immortal X-Men, a book about the Quiet Council, the spotlight issue number six focuses on Shaw and shows him make a sorceress pact with the astral entity called Mother Righteous. With the revelation in Legion of X by Cy Spurrier that Mother Righteous is actually one of the four Sinisters, see the Mr. Sinister episode, it remains to be seen what will become of the one-time Black King when the apocalyptic Sins of Sinister event, currently ongoing, concludes. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed that accounting in which I hopefully slotted all of the backstory reveals and retcons in in the appropriate chronological moments. This is a tough one because a lot of different writers have revealed things about Shaw over time. But I definitely will have slotted in the Lordis story correctly as opposed to, oh shit, we forgot to talk about out with the old. <laughs> but um, So when last we left our villain... He was dead, killed by his own son in X-Factor 67. Four years later, he pops up randomly in X-Force with a cool new scar over his left eye, like Sub-Zero in MK3. Everybody had this scar in the 90s. It's just like mm -hmm. a red... It's basically the mark that the Crimson Dawn gives Betsy as a tattoo because everybody... I used to have a scar in my eyebrow. That's a cool look, but this is like fully down over oh. the Oh, it's eye. the full eye. Oh, it's the full you. like red line that goes over the eye. But that's the only apparent sign of that time that Shinobi gave him a heart attack and blew up the building. <laughs> to be fair, he absorbs kinetic energy. Right. So like, you know, maybe it was fine. But where's he been all this time? Not super clear. But he thinks... Xavier, the X-Men, the Hellfire Club, Shinobi, they will all learn slowly, painfully. What is mine is mine, and what is theirs is mine. <laughs> he has reunited with Tessa, who had been working for Shinobi, because her loyalty was to the club, not to right. Sebastian, is the way that the stories had sort of I mean, intimated. he's signing the paychecks now. So. Exactly. But now in this story, which this is now the Jeff Loeb run on X-Force, we get a story where it's very clear that her personal allegiance is to Sebastian because they have reunited. It's kind of a fun Adam Polina art sequence where they have like matching little jumpsuits. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because he treats her more like a peer than he did previously, right. but he's more on his own. Yeah, because he doesn't have the power structure behind him. So it's like, this is me and my business partner, Tessa. And so it's much less, this is my cocktail slave than it was <laughs> in the 80s. 
the big thing that happens in this story is that the Age of Apocalypse has just come and gone. And so some of the beings from the Age of Apocalypse made it through to our reality. One of them is Nate Gray, the X-Man, and the others are three villains. The Sugar Man, don't worry about it. Dark Beast, don't worry about it right now. And Holocaust, who you also don't especially need to worry about, but who factors into this story. Holocaust- It's just the weirdest team up. It's like- the two of them There's, I kill Cable of all Here's them. the thing. I get the notion, if you look at Holocaust in the sense that it's being used here of a nuclear Holocaust, right. Shaw as an arms dealer linking up with Holocaust makes sense to me, but Holocaust is just a very silly character. Yeah, he's a, he's a big... He's a big suit guy. He's, yeah, he's, he's the son of Apocalypse, whose original name was Nemesis, but he became Holocaust after he got set on fire and melted down into a skeleton man, and he's a skeleton floating in a vat of orange gunk in a big, churning, nuclear battle suit that looks kind of like the Juggernaut, shape-wise. Right. He has a gun arm. He was a very cool action figure that I had that was mm -hmm. called Marvel's Nemesis because <laughs> Toy Biz refused to put Holocaust on right. an action figure Wise box. Decision. Shaw approaches Holocaust, who has been stalking Nate Gray, and is like, hey, I am an engineer with this huge history of making cool robot guys right. and i can make you a more powerful robot guy suit to live in if you will help me capture x-force the former new mutants because then tessa can telepathically brainwash them into my servants right so they do that holocaust notably puts tabby's father in a coma right after tabby and her father have like a tentative reconciliation and so she never gets to find out what happened to her long lost mother <laughs> unless i missed that but i think it just gets dropped after the low run you know listeners write in if we ever get a follow-up on boom boom's mom that i just missed somewhere along the way anyway cable just goes around and unlocks all their memories again and it's fine but this creates an overall relationship now between Shaw and Cable and Nate Gray that is then where Shaw kind of lives for the rest of the 90s, which is and very strange. And that's so strange because, like, he, he died with such a strong motivation. It's like, get back at Shinobi. Right, but Shinobi has flopped as a character at this point. Oh, so they're like, don't bother. You know, okay. like he had his brief, like one issue Hellfire Club with Benedict Kine and Reva Page and Benazir Kaur, which are three fantastic names for characters that never appear again. <laughs> Reva Page did recur on The Gifted, so good for her. Benazir Kaur is not only an incredible name, but also she had a super cool power which was that she accelerates disease, particularly cancer. And so when Gambit is fighting her, she turns to him and she's like, oh, you're a smoker. And he's like, what? <laughs> she like makes his lungs emphysemic by like right. gesturing at him and he is dying suddenly. Luckily for him, when you knock her out, it all rewinds. So that worked out well for him because that's a power that if it just kept going, she'd be pretty much unstoppable. That's a right. character I would like to see again at some point. She feels like a natural villain for like Monet to deal with an X-Corp or something if that book had gone longer. 
you never know. I just like to see all of those weirdos come back at some point. And Shinobi's in circulation, so there's no reason not to see his friends again. Maybe they're like Christian Frost's old buddies. And <sighs> Emma will be like, oh, Reva Page, she always idolized me. She's so annoying. And it would be kind of funny. Yeah. Isn't there that great moment where Emma's like, really? You named your boat the upstart? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, remember when your game is what caused all the Hellions to die? Like, you're such a fucking prick. But anyway, Shinobi's flopped is the thing. So in the intervening years, the Hellfire Club just hasn't really been a thing in the franchise. So in X-Men, Terry Cavanaugh just launches this whole new plot where Celine is teaching Madeline Pryor dark sorcery. We will get into this storyline much deeper. We did a little bit of it in the Celine episode. We did a little bit in the Threnody episode. And we will do a lot more of it in episode 100 with Sarah Sentry on Madeline Pryor. Can't wait. Madeline has amnesia at this point. She is Celine's apprentice in black magic. And they're also definitely fucking, but that's like subtextual. But not that subtextual, honestly. There's also this sexy blonde French maid who is clearly fucking both of them. And it's like a whole weird sapphic villainous triangle happening in like a Paris chateau in the background of X-Men. But anyway, Celine goes to... Shaw with Madeline and Trevor Fitzroy, who Celine has tortured into becoming her new servant. It's a fun off-screen thing where she gets her revenge on Fitzroy, who had previously trapped her in a spooling device that had... Oh, yes, the winding and unwinding. Because Celine was actually the bankroller behind the upstarts, which is something that is revealed post-Claremont, and it doesn't super work out for her because Fitzroy's like, wait, she'd be worth a lot of points, though. So (laughs) she turns it around on her pretty quick, and she's like, wow, rude. But so he she gets revenge on him here, and he for whatever horrible thing she does to him, he starts working for her again. So she brings them to Shaw and is like, hey, fuck Shinobi and whatever's been going on with the Hellfire Club in New York, we should start a new inner circle. Like, we should just anti-pope it and just declare you're Black King again and I'm Black Queen and, like, we rule and it's great and it's fine. And to sweeten the pot, she's like, here are my candidates for the inner circle Trevor Fitzroy, and Madeline Pryor. Madeline, of course, is the spitting image of Jean Grey, who Shaw was once very attracted to during Dark Phoenix Saga and all of that. So there's that element to it. But also, Maddie has kind of weird new powers in this era, in part because she is a ghost that Nate Grey reconstituted from astral fragments, but also because she's learning magic and she touches him and heals the scar that he's had since the X-Force story. Like it fades Uh off his face and he's like, whoa. And she's like, let's bang. And then they start fucking. And uh, I hate that for Madeline, except she doesn't, here's the thing. She hasn't seen him do anything truly terrible and she has no memories and he is hot. Yeah. She's never met him. Right. And he's a hot guy with a lot of power and money. So like, I get it. She privately says to him, I work for Celine and she's my teacher, but really your Hellfire Club should have two queens as is only proper, right? And the red queen should be me. Right. Because in Europe, the Hellfire Clubs have a black suit and a red suit because that's how it works in Europe. White and black is American chess. 
he's like, cool, great idea. And that just continues in the background in X-Man for a while until a cable story where Shaw has been seen with Maddie so much that Irene Merriweather starts investigating the reporter who is a supporting character in Cable. Donald Pierce shows up because he's trying to get back in good with Shaw. And so Shaw sends him to kill Irene Merriweather, but it does not work out. Right. <laughs> it's just not. Pierce is just generally not that good at this stuff. Yeah, he's, you know, he had a moment in the outback, but. Then there's a couple little stories. In this period, Shaw is, his new Hellfire Club is based in Hong Kong because Shinobi still has control of the facilities in New York. There's a weird story in Adjectiveless X-Men 61. It's this story where there is a potential cure for the legacy virus. Oh, Shaw tries to steal it, right. Shaw plans to isolate it and get the patent and then like Martin Shkreli, all the other mutants. so That is very Shaw. Yes, to turn a profit on this drug. And so Storm, to make sure that can't happen, destroys the potential cure so that Shaw can't have it, which I'm not sure that was the best possible solution, but that's what she does. Anyway, when next we see him, he is in Cable in a story where a time traveler called Chever, go back to the that Strife is weird. episode, Chever is a former disciple of the Ascani from the future, but then he ended up raising Strife for Apocalypse, and you don't have to worry about Chever at all. But Chever tries to awaken Apocalypse with the help of Shaw, who immediately is like, if we awaken Apocalypse, maybe I can make a buck off this. Right. Like, it's very... I can steal his tech. <laughs> I want the celestial technology and, like, his vast powers. So they link up with this ancient being called the Harbinger, and they find that Apocalypse's lair is in the Swiss Alps, which just is notably right. the same tomb that Exodus was sleeping in for all those years, I guess, I think. Yeah, I like, he put a sign on the door, like, you know, gone fishing. Yeah, so it's Exodus's birdcage that Apocalypse <laughs> is apparently also in. And Chever and Shaw and Donald Pierce go to Switzerland to go see what's what. Cable follows them to try and prevent them from awakening Apocalypse. And then when they get there, it's empty and Apocalypse is already gone. Right. So that's disappointing for Shaw and for Cable, who really thought that Apocalypse was in hibernation. They all fight with Cable, but Shaw is pissed at Chever and puts Chever in the hibernation chamber. Like, you can go wake up again in the Ascani future, you dumb fuck. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of the wrap-up for Chever, who later gets killed by Strife in the future. Again, don't worry about any of that. Shaw is like, okay, that was a huge... <laughs> pain in my ass and pierce is like but we're still cool right like i'm gonna be back in the hellfire club right and shaw is like no actually get you out of suck. my sight yeah yeah his next big appearance is in a machine man miniseries oh is did it the x51 yes uh i did read it i i absorbed none of it <laughs> neither did i i guess it's not a mini it's an ongoing it's like um 
It's like 12 or 13 issues. <laughs> but uh, this is by Mike Higgins and Carl Bowlers. Carl Bowlers, best known to this podcast, is the writer of the Emma Frost Origins ongoing that I hate so much. Oh, boy. Um, we're just going to we're gonna move right on. It turns out that Machine Man has incorporated some of the Sentinel technology into himself, and Shaw is offended because that's his IP. <laughs> and so... Susan. Well, he (laughs) hires Mystique to get it back. And then Mystique is like, wait, Sentinels? Fuck you. And so that's kind of funny. Thinking about like the quiet council of it all. And this actually is an important moment because Gyrick is there and Machine Man turns to Shaw and overrides the code programming that's been there from the beginning that has Sentinels read Shaw as human and is like, wait, you're a mutant. Yeah, he's outed to Gyrick. Oh, that's got to be awkward. But then they overpower Machine Man and Shaw is like, wow, that was a crazy glitch in his system, huh? (laughs) And Gyrick is like, yeah, super weird. Why would he think that? And we just move on with our day. But it is a funny, that's just a funny Henry Peter Gyrick's an idiot moment. And then we get X-Men Hellfire Club. So crazy. (laughs) Ben Rom's X-Men Hellfire Club is a miniseries from 2000 that gives you the full history of the Hellfire Club. When I say this is one of the craziest things that happens in the late 90s in X-Men, that's a tall order. This is around the same time (laughs) as the 12... God, so many things that didn't need to happen. Like, this is right around Hot Marrow. Like, everything's going weird at this moment. But among the weirdest things is this Hellfire Club miniseries. Up until Jerry Duggan's Marauders, the only other appearance of Lourdes Chantel, because it gives you the backstory of her relationship with Sebastian, but it also gives you the backstory of Sebastian's family. The craziest thing about... The craziest thing about X-Men Hellfire Club is that it features Lady Jean Grey. Right. The fictional character from Dark Phoenix Saga that Jason Wingard convinced Jean was her ancestor. And it turns out here that she was a real person (laughs) and that Jason was just doing like historical fiction holodeck simulations i guess of like a biopic of lady jean gray who is exactly that woman looks exactly like jean is an evil slave owner like all of it it's like his version of of like a bodice ripper but yeah he was like really committed to the research it's his version of like a countess bathory pot boiler it's like i picked this historical figure but is this woman jean gray's actual ancestor perhaps like that's the implication so super weird and hopefully never to be touched upon again because it's insane It does tie up something we've talked about earlier in the episode, which is that in the classic X-Men backup with Lourdes and in other stories, it's stressed repeatedly that Sebastian Shaw, unlike Ned Buckman, who came from money, is a self-made businessman, which is something he really values about his own life story and about other people in general. It's why he was so impressed by Emmanuel DaCosta, as we said earlier. Stories after that, about the Hellfire Club had then established that Shaw's ancestors were part of the Hellfire Club previously. So like the Worthingtons, 
So what this miniseries does is explain how that could have come to pass by showing us the Shaw family in England and their fall from power, but also how Sebastian's father became an asset of Mr. Sinister. Yeah, which I don't like as much. I like it only because Mike Carey makes a good story out of it later. Legacy is good. It's really bad in X-Men Hellfire Club, particularly because Sebastian's father, Jacob Shaw, is the son of Cornelia Shaw, who is part of the London Hellfire Club, and their family has lots of money. And Jacob Shaw is envious of his older brother, Esau Shaw. Yeah, getting real biblical here. Yeah, but like, who names their sons Jacob and Esau? That's an insane thing to do. Someone with not very much Bible studies or just like astounding hubris. Right. Like it's, this is not a Torah podcast except when it is. But for the listeners, if you're not familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau, it's sort of like naming your kids Cain and Abel. Like it's a weird thing to do. So Jacob is like, I want to be the king of the Hellfire Club, but it's going to go to my brother Esau because he's older than me. And so Nathaniel Essex comes to him and alters his DNA to give him strange new powers. He becomes a shapeshifter. Right. And he murders Esau to replace him in the family line of primogeniture it doesn't work out and he ends up fleeing to america where as far as we know he falls into poverty later mike carey will explain what happened to him in the interim but in the hellfire club miniseries we see him move to pittsburgh with his son and become a coal miner Shaw, Sebastian, rather, because they're all Shaws now, so I should be clear. Sebastian, when he is old enough, becomes a steel mill worker as a teenager and is an engineering prodigy who, as you said, gets a full scholarship to the Stevens Institute. His father gets sick and dies. He gets the black lung, yeah. Yeah, because that'll happen when you're a coal miner. And Sebastian is excitedly telling the bartender at the local dive about his scholarship when a bunch of students from the Institute overhear him and decide that this up-jumped working-class townie should learn a little respect. So they try to beat the shit out of him, but this is the first time his mutant power catalyzes and their blows just make him stronger and he kicks the absolute shit out of them. This makes him feel really good. Yeah. This is where his, like, ego trip starts and never stops. Sebastian Hiram Shaw was born with a rusted spoon in his mouth and holy fire raging in his belly. Not a religious man, but a man of boundless faith in his hopes, his dreams, himself. I do like Ben Rob when Ben Rob yeah. is on. This miniseries is just so crazy. Yeah, and, and Shaw becomes like a Halliburton guy. 
basically. Yeah, he goes to the Stevens Institute, graduates magna cum laude, becomes like the huge star of his class, is hired as consultant and engineer by all these huge firms, creates Shaw Industries and makes a million dollars by the age of 30 and a billion dollars by the age of 40. This is when he first meets Lourdes, who right. is living in New York. She is from Spain, but has been in New York for a while and is a member of the Hellfire Club, which appeals to Sebastian because he knows that his grandfather was a big deal in the Hellfire right. Club back in England. So it's like a, a you know getting getting back the the, the family legacy. Exactly. Then he builds his little personal inner circle around him. He becomes friends with Leland. He recruits Emma. He recruits Pierce. And he recruits Tessa. These recruitment stories are seen in other flashback stuff. I mean, Tessa's is in Extreme X-Men. Pierce's is in the Cable story we talked about. And Emma's is from New X-Men 139, the Morrison story. Like, so we, when we first are reading this, we don't know how he assembled them all. But we see him assemble them, and he becomes an important dude. Yeah. This is his origin story, really. And even in this story, Lourdes is not super comfortable with the direction he's going in. Yeah, she can tell he has a dark side. Yeah, but also she loves him and thinks that she can save him from mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why she stays with him. We see him and Buckman figuring out the Project Armageddon stuff with Stephen Lang there is a more explicit explanation that Shaw signed up specifically so that they could capture the X-Men, understand the X-Gene, and monopolize mutant power existing in the world. Lourdes really doesn't like Ned Buckman, and she's like, I think he wants to kill all mutants, and I think that you're stupid to trust him. Right. Which she says in a slightly more delicate way than that, but she gets her point across. Shaw is like would you stop riding my dick? Like, I know what I'm doing. And to try and smooth things over, he proposes marriage to her very romantically on Christmas in this miniseries, and she does accept. And so retroactively... They were engaged. We now know that, yeah, when she dies in that backup, she wasn't just a lover, she was his fiance. So it's a bigger deal. Again, it's... It, harkens back to i would love to know what the deal is with his mother because right. there's like very madonna whore with lordis also lordis isn't like tessa lordis isn't like emma lordis isn't like these girls he puts in corsets that's not her role in his life and i think that that's really key to the character going forward now that lordis is back but we're getting ahead of ourselves mm -hmm. Not that I think they're going to get back together, but just in the sense right. that, like, I think his specific regard for Lourdes is important. Yeah. Why he does what he does. Later. Yes. Yeah. Right. So that's X-Men Hellfire Club. It's an interesting little curiosity if you can find it. It's not well collected. Some of the retcons in it are crazy. Others help smooth things over, and you don't super, super have to worry about it. In the present, we have the framing device of the miniseries, which is that Tessa is telling Irene Merriweather, the reporter, about the life of Sebastian Shaw. Right. At Shaw's behest, Shaw then shows up. This part's a little confusing to me because it's just sort of like 
okay, but why not just yeah. not do this? Yeah, why why go to the effort of, of yeah. telling her all this stuff and say, you can't publish any of this? Right, you've been digging and now you know everything there is to know about me, but I will never let any of it see print and fuck you. There you are, Miss Merriweather, the story you've so doggedly been searching for. A pity you'll never have the chance to publish it. Gonna kill me first? That seems to be your M.O. A call to my attorney should suffice. Hey, freedom of the press, jerko. Naturally, but what sort of freedom do you expect to have after I've bought all the publishing houses and their printing presses? To whom will you cry wolf then? Yeah, well, I'll find someone else to publish it. You can't silence the truth. People deserve to know. By what right do you deny them that? By right to power, girl. The only thing that matters. So she goes to J. Jonah Jameson at the Daily Bugle, right. who apparently publishes... Yeah, a I lot mean, of it, but there don't seem to be any consequences. So yeah, you to to give JJJ his credit, like he is generally a very he has a blind spot about Spider Man, but otherwise he's a pretty he's a forthright journalist. Yeah. yeah, so you know, good for him, but it doesn't seem like it hurts Shaw any particularly because when next we see him, it's an Extreme X Men. Oh, I love this. Yeah, the revelations about Tessa and Sage have taken place. That Tessa was always Xavier's spy planted at the Hellfire Club. In the six-month gap, she was captured by Elias Bogan, an old enemy of Shaw's, but the reasons why are not detailed until later in the story. At this point, we just know that Shaw didn't rescue her and Storm did, and that she has sworn her loyalty to Storm because right. she's super sprung, honestly. <laughs> is the subtext, I think. Sebastian's really pissed that this yes. woman who he actually trusted was lying to him the whole time. Right. And that's kind of why he does the whole setup with the lady's mastermind, where he's like... Just the one, unfortunately. I wish it was Sorry. both of them. But yes, no, he Lady. hires Reagan. Right. It's the first appearance of Reagan who Claremont creates because... Martinique, who he was going to use, is currently appearing in the Banshee's fascist cops arc right. of Uncanny by Joe Casey. So he has to invent a new lady mastermind who's her half-sister. Reagan Wingard is hired. They're in Australia, the X-Men, at this point, yeah. because Shaw is making moves on the underworld in Sydney. Lady Mastermind traps Sage in an illusion where she is Tessa once again. Yeah, it's all her old memories. Right. It's like almost like Shaw being like, remember what we were together. Yes, but this is also where we see the reveal of her time with Xavier right. and her in the 60s training uniform as an 18-year-old who Xavier then sent to the Hellfire Club and all of that really fucked up stuff that, like, you can go back to the Tessa episode for more on. Love this character. She's really having a moment right now in X-Force, and I think that oh, yeah. it's, like, finally Tessa's time, which is exciting to me. Anyway, the point is that Lady Mastermind is going to manipulate her as Tessa in her mind into murdering Sage, which will then brainwash her, like reverse her to who she was before she joined the X-Men or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's This is all telepathic, brainwashing, mind control, Chris Claremont stuff. Lady Mastermind in this story has like an O-ring collar on. This is like fully crazy BDSM yeah. stuff. It's very classic. It's fun in that way. My darling Tessa, you have no idea how eagerly I've looked forward to our reunion and hearing firsthand both how and why you betrayed me. Because he still doesn't know. Like, yeah. he doesn't discover until they're doing this scan of her mind that the whole time it was a lie, which just really drives him fucking crazy. 
But Sage defeats Lady Mastermind with the help of Rogue and most importantly, Lifeguard, the new recruit to the X-Men who you don't have to worry about until I get to a Lifeguard episode. She's fun. She's a really stupid character, but she's also fun in a stupid way. Mm-hmm. Toward the end of Extreme, we get what happened with Bogan, which is that Bogan was the secret power behind the Hellfire Club. He only acts through proxies and is a shadowy telepath who is clearly filling the role in this story that was meant to be filled by Amal Farouk. And you can just right. tell that Chris showed up and was told that Farouk was off the board and was really pissed and made up this new character. Elias Bogan was the real power behind the throne and Shaw made a bet with him that helped Shaw secure power over the club. And it was over a poker game because Bogan had never lost a poker game ever. If Shaw lost, he was going to have to give Emma to Bogan as a sex slave. Right, right. And Emma agreed. She was like, I'm down because I know you can beat him. And the way that they beat him was Tessa cheated by using her computer brain to count the cards. So in the present, Bogan decides, you know what? I owe that girl a whole world of hurt. And so that's why during the six-month gap, he had captured her. He had tried to ransom her to Shaw in exchange for Shaw's entire fortune. And Shaw was like, look, no, (laughs) I like her, but not that much. So that's what happened there. Once Claremont is back on Uncanny in 2004 as part of the Uncanny Reload, this is around the House of M moment. There is a very weird subplot that goes absolutely nowhere about Courtney Ross. Yes. Who is apparently back from the dead. Courtney Ross, the late girlfriend of Brian Braddock, the president of Fraser's Bank in London, who was murdered and replaced by her extra-dimensional counterpart, Opal Lun Saturnin, not to be confused with Opal Luna Saturnine, who is also a Courtney Ross, but from a different timeline. Opal Lun Saturnin, it's nine the number, but like they also write it N-I-N sometimes, and it's just pronounced Saturnine because there's Abbott and Costello right. gags, but I'm pronouncing it weird so that you can understand I'm talking about the fashion one with the triangle haircut. This is where they start to recycle Shaw trying to get back to the Black King a little bit. Yes. So Courtney, quote unquote, who is probably actually Saturnine again, but this is a drop plot from when Claremont and Davis were still on Excalibur. And she claims in this story and then in New Excalibur by Claremont that she actually is Courtney and that she was resurrected by the House of M reality warp. And Brian is like not sure whether to believe her, but she doesn't have Saturnine's tattoo. So maybe she is really Courtney. I'm like, Brian, you can remove tattoos, but like whatever. (laughs) Laser surgery has been invented. Yeah, like truly. But anyway, Courtney Ross has become the new white queen of the Hellfire Club. She has hired Viper to work as her personal assassin, Viper of Hydra and the Serpent Society, briefly, but best known to fans as Madame Hydra, probably. Not Valentina Allegra de Fontaine. Right. The classic Madame Hydra. You know, don't worry about it right now. He decides to create an alliance with Courtney to try and seize control back of the Hellfire Club because in the late 90s, Celine had reestablished the Hellfire Club in New York with Blackheart, the son of Mephisto, and then later with Sunspot. Right. But that's mostly been stuff that's now off screen because... Like, that's Claremont and John Francis Moore setting stuff up in the late 90s, but then when Morrison reboots the whole franchise, most of those plots just get dropped. So Claremont's now back in 2004, and the Hellfire Club is reforming. In 
Uncanny 452, we learn that Shaw has become the Lord Imperial of the Hellfire Club and has reformed it. He sends invitations to a couple X-Men that he thinks should join him, specifically Sunspot, Emma, and Sage. Brilliant idea. Yeah, come join me. Sunspot is like, honestly, I'm going to take it because I can use the Hellfire Club's power and money and resources to leverage pressure over the international trafficking of mutants into slavery. So he like has a philanthropic goal he wants to use it for. Sage baffles everyone by enthusiastically accepting the offer and once again becoming Tessa. She still has her Sage face tattoos, but like she puts the corset on, she's back with Shaw. Everyone's like, what the fuck is Sage doing? Shaw insists to the X-Men that he has had a change of heart. He has realized that... So this is like part of the extended retcon that he and Charles have known each other for years and that Tessa knew both of them before all of this went down. He says, I want to take the course I should have taken when Charles Xavier and I first met, the one Tessa recommended, which is like to be in solidarity with other mutants. Whether or not this is a scam is not 100% clear because before they can proceed with any of these plans, they are attacked by Donald Pierce, who has decided to kill Shaw and become Lord Imperial, has upgraded himself with new claws and whatnot. Shaw is able to decapitate him with a big punch, which is kind of cool, but like Pierce is a cyborg, so he'll get better. Don't super worry about him. And Shaw, as he is being taken away for medical care, is like, you knew this, Sage. You knew that Pierce would attack. Given your history, it was a logical and inevitable response. You didn't warn me. No. Another betrayal. What a fool I was to take you back, like trusting a scorpion. And she reminds him that he named her Tessa. Right. I have mixed feelings about that line, but I have an elaborate headcanon about it. Because he met her in Afghanistan, I have this notion that maybe her name is something Pashto or Persian or, you know. I mean, Tessa is pretty Anglo. Yes. And so I think maybe, like, my headcanon is that she's Iranian because I think it's insane that there are no Iranian mutants and I think that her being Iranian would be interesting given X-Force in the modern era Mm -hmm. and her role in it and Afghanistan borders Iran so and she doesn't seem to be from Afghanistan like she's a traveler when she's there but anyway the point is it doesn't matter but I think it would be really cool if she had a Farsi name that starts with a T and that he just changed it because it was too hard for him to remember like john gaius i mean this happens a lot and it's a very it would be a very sebastian shaw thing to do which would be kind of interesting and it would explain why she doesn't use it after she leaves it right but i'm just interested in tessa slash sage and in her whole deal anyway with shaw out of commission because he needs medical care Tessa slash Sage puts Sunspot in charge as the new Lord Imperial. And that is the status quo for a minute. But like only a minute because then House of M happens. Everyone gets decimated. He shows up in Endangered Species. There's kind of an interesting moment. This is a great issue, but also kind of crazy. Yeah. There's this little mutant boy who dies in like a hit and run traffic accident. 
Shaw goes to the funeral, but uses an image inducer so that he doesn't get noticed. Right. And Charles is like, what are you doing here? And Shaw is like, listen, there's not that many of us left. This boy who died mattered and I came to pay my respects. So fuck you. Yeah. You don't know me that well. It's an interesting preview of the Shaw that Mike Carey will write in Legacy. Yes. Who is a slightly more complicated character. Yeah. The the weird thing about it is he has this great line where he's like, you know, you and I, Charles, were, you know, all we did was was bruise our knuckles against each other or something like that. And I'm like, that's a very interesting self-conception from Shaw because, like, you spent several decades thinking of mutants as intellectual property to be ground up in a lab. Yeah. You're not Magneto. You're not even Emma Frost. Like, Emma Frost has a, a political, you know, ideology and agenda. Right. You were about money. Like, where is this revisionism coming from? But I think it's in the interest of making him a more layered yes. character. Yes, that you is know, true. and I think that that's smart. Because that leads into the legacy plot around the time of Messiah Complex, or after Messiah Complex, rather, because Sinister is killed in Messiah Complex. And we see Shaw and the Lord's Cardinal talking. Sunspot is Lord Imperial, and Shaw hates answering to this kid who he doesn't respect very much. But more importantly, Shaw has this weird machine yes. that his father gave him. And after Sinister dies, it freaks out and kills some Hellfire guards. Yeah, it blows up. Yeah, if it doesn't kill them, it fucks them up real bad. Shaw is pissed about being shamed in front of the rest of the Hellfire Club by Huberto and looks into Project Cronus, which is what the machine is about. And this is where we get the backstory of what happened with Shaw's father between Ben Rob's Hellfire Club and, well, other parts of Ben Rob's Hellfire Club. So basically, when he moved to America, before he became a coal miner, he worked for Mr. Sinister and Amanda Mueller, the Black Womb. He specifically sought out skilled geneticists to recruit for the Black Womb Project in Alamogordo, candidates who not only were accomplished scientists, but also were carriers for the X gene. And that included Charles Xavier's parents, Brian and Sharon, Juggernaut's father, Kurt Marco, Irene Adler. He brought all these people together. The children produced at Alamogordo were brought there. I mean, some of them were already yeah. born, but like, Charles and Kane and Carter Reiking. Alexander Reiking was one of the other scientists. And this is from a Nicias' story early in the 90s where the Black Womb Project and all of that was introduced. All of those kids were experimented on by Sinister, who created a failsafe in them, Project Cronus, referring not to Kronos time, but to Cronus, the right. Titan father of Zeus and the Olympian gods. Now those characters are often linked together and were in antiquity even because of their similar names and because Cronus is a god of the harvest. And so time is, this is not a classics podcast mm. except when it is, but point is, Cronus is most famous for Saturn is his Roman name, Saturn devouring his son, the Goya yep. thing. Cronus was told by prophecy that 
one of his children would defeat him, so he devoured them all whole when they were born. And in this story, we see that these children have been primed with a sinister protocol that turns them, one of them, into Mr. Sinister if he is killed. It is revealed that Sebastian was also one of the test subjects when his father was working for Dr. Milbury. There are a couple things that have precluded some of these characters from being possessed. Juggernaut is immune to the protocol because of the power of Ciderac that's in him. Carter Reiking has an aneurysm and dies in the mental hospital because he was depowered by the decimation and his human brain can't handle the input of the protocol. Mm-hmm. Charles, who is the one investigating all of this, crosses paths with Shaw. Shaw realizes that the machine that freaked out that his father gave him that he has promised to always keep in his vicinity at all times right. since he was a child which is just a retcon, but sure, it's fine. Like, why not? Just keep it in a drawer. Is a device that counteracts the protocol and has prevented Sinister from taking root in Sebastian specifically. So that leaves Charles, who ends up possessed by Sinister. This all leads to a big confrontation with the Black Womb, who it turns out secretly did the process to herself with a modification that would let her get all of Sinister's power without being possessed by his mind. But she has to now kill Charles and Sebastian to make sure that that happens. And there's a great moment where Shaw, who is so hot in this story, I gotta say. It's just like about as attractive as he's ever been drawn, particularly in this sequence with Gambit, is like, all right, Xavier has been possessed by Sinister. Amanda Mueller is doing all kinds of evil shit. We gotta destroy the machine. Mm -hmm. So he has Gambit squeeze his titties And charge him full of all the kinetic energy Gambit can possibly channel. It's a good mutant circuit. It is fully a mutant circuit. And we know that Hickman loves the carry run. So I think that this mutant circuit moment is an important moment for the Krakoa era. Gambit says, you're a brave man. And Shaw says, I'm an egotist. I'd prefer to die as myself rather than live as someone else. And so... Gambit electrifies his nipples and he goes, Arf! and, you know, super powers up, destroys the machine. Xavier has managed in the interim to astrally force Sinister out of his mind. So with Sinister expelled from Charles and the machine destroyed, it seems like Sinister's really dead for good. Shaw goes, hmm, Ms. Mueller took the opportunity to leave while we were otherwise engaged. I think if neither of you gentlemen objects, I'll do the same. And Charles says, goodbye, Sebastian. Your assistance was appreciated. Please, I was on Sinister's list myself. Altruism has never been one of my vices, and I'm too old to take up new hobbies, which I think is fun. It's a good use of Shaw as a more neutral character mm-hmm. without diminishing the nasty aspects of yes. the character. It's leaning on that sort of rugged individualist kind of, you know, nobody's going to control me mm-hmm. is smart. Meanwhile, Sunspot has left the Hellfire Club for reasons. Don't super worry about it. 
Shaw is approached by Claudine Renko, Miss Sinister, who has inherited the Sinister power because he had a backup plan besides Project Cronus. And don't worry too much about her because she'll get her own episode at some point. But she becomes his new Black Queen, although she doesn't use the title because she wants to be called Miss Sinister, which is fun. They are definitely hooking up. It's like a weird vibe but because she's kind of also partly mr sinister it's like yeah, not that's foregrounded weird. you know it's not foregrounded because like that's a little gay for <laughs> marvel comics at this moment in time shaw has power back in the hellfire club because sunspot left due to stuff with donald pierce don't worry about it again there are a bunch of new hellfire club characters introduced here who then never appear again one of them is a woman named Mercedes, who seems to be the new Tessa, but also looks like Lourdes. And I think that that's really interesting, but she literally appears once and then never again. So, but she was like in an inner circle meeting like Tessa used to be. So that implies kind of an important character, but then she's never appeared again. But there are these other characters who are like inner circle people fighting each other. Their names are Turner and Castlemere. And Turner attempts to assassinate Castlemere, who's a cyborg, and Castlemere survives and kills Turner. And it's just lots of, you know, Hellfire Club intrigue and nonsense yeah. and shenanigans. This leads into the crossover Original Sin, which is a crossover between Carrie's X-Men Legacy and Daniel Way's run on Wolverine, where Shaw and Claudine try to brainwash Dakin into killing Charles and Logan, and it doesn't work out for them. And we'll get into that at some point in a Dakin episode. It's not super relevant here. It doesn't yeah. deeply matter. Shaw's next big appearance is in the Uncanny X-Men Annual in 2009, which is during Dark Reign. Right. This story is really weird. It's, I mean, it's kind of fun, but it's very, it basically, this is when they're retconning together the relationship between Emma and Namor. And so it's established that back when she was White Queen and Shaw's lover, Shaw dispatched Emma to seduce Namor and all of this other Man, stuff. like him and Magneto, they keep, like, sending women to, to <laughs> Namor to, like, get him on side. And uh, it worked because Namor is so hot for Emma and that's super fun. But then Namor found out about Sentinels and stuff and it just didn't, it wasn't super good. There's a weird moment here where Celine wipes Emma's memories, but that can't be correct because Celine wasn't in the Hellfire Club back then. So it's probably right. supposed to be Tessa or it's just a mistake, but don't super worry about it. In the present, Emma is dealing with Namor as part of the cabal in Dark Reign, and she agrees to execute Shaw because of his role in Sentinel attacks on Atlantis. So she fakes telepathically the execution of Shaw and pretends to Namor that he's actually dead. Is this where she mind wipes him, or is that later? That's later. She's okay. a double agent here for the X-Men. She's not actually working for the Cabal. So she's like, I can't actually kill Shaw. So I'm going to figure out a way to make everyone think I killed Shaw. She eventually brings him to the brig beneath Utopia in the aftermath of Dark Reign, where she explains to him that she views him as personally responsible for the genocide of Genosha because the Trask Sentinels that Cassandra Nova co-opted were funded by him. Right. 
she's like, I watched all those children die all around me and I blame you. So you're going to be here forever. And I am going to upload into your brain their last terrified moments that have imprinted on me since it happened. And you're just going to get to replay that over and over in here until you go crazy. Enjoy. Bye. Is this where we get that weird retcon about the two other Hellfire Club women that you don't like? That's in, yes, because that's in Fraction. Okay, because he, he spends a long time in that tube, and I, I Yes, and while he's there, this is in the Fraction run, we get a flashback to Emma's time. Here's my problem. There's a couple different problems I have with it. So the story, to be clear, is that Shaw and Emma have become close. This is after they have killed Buckman and Seville, which is why this doesn't make sense to me. He is Black King and in charge of the whole thing. He is testing her. He's had her work with these two Hellfire Club waitresses, Rebecca and Anne, who she's become really good friends with. And he says to her, if you want to become my queen, one of them has to die. Pick one. He gives her a Sophie's choice about it to see if she has it in her. And Emma says, honestly, I don't care which one you kill, which is the correct answer. And then he brutally beats them to death with his bare hands in front of her while she drinks a glass of champagne. I don't like this story for a couple reasons. One is I don't think it tracks with out with the old, which is such a great story because Emma is very clearly already tapped to be his white queen when she telepathically helps him slaughter the entirety of the council of the chosen. So I just don't buy this, but I also think it's part of an ongoing lazy thing in the Brubaker and fraction runs in particular where because Emma is a good guy now, we have to make sure that we stress that she was abused by Shaw and that's why she was evil. Right. And I just don't like that. I think it is disrespectful of her agency. I think it's a sexist trope. I think it's fine to say, like we did with Magneto, that sometimes villains change and Emma changed for the better. This is also just, I mean, it doesn't help that it's Greg Land who draws this issue. Oh, God, it's like treading on a Lego. It reads like a snuff porn. Like, it Mm -hmm. reads like a porno where the women get beaten to death. And I find that really off-putting. This is Uncanny 531. I just really don't like it. I don't like the way this is. This is after Emma has also been like a victim of Shaw's in the backups for Deadly Genesis. Right. Where she's just another stripper at the club who like he's mistreating. And I just don't I don't buy it. I also think that. I guess this is after Lourdes died. Temporally. But I just don't buy that a man this overtly violent to women is someone Lourdes would have ever engaged with. Mm. It's the sort of difference between, like, controlled versus uncontrolled psychopath. 
there are abusive men who abuse women, and then there are serial killers. And I just right. think that it's a matter of degree here that doesn't work for me. It doesn't scan with the character. And it's in the service of disempowering Emma in a way that I find tacky. And it's drawn like a sick murder porn by Greg Lamb. So it's just not an issue I like. But it adds further context to why Emma is happy to keep him in solitary confinement going insane, I guess. The other thing about it that I don't like is making Emma a victim, to me, is disrespectful to Storm hmm. because of that body swap storyline we were right. talking about right. where Emma victimizes Storm. And, like, hurt people hurt people, obviously. But in tandem with the Carl Bowler's Emma series and all this other stuff, it just feels like a very lazy way. You don't have to Harley Quinn Emma to make us buy her as a hero. And that's my problem with this. Harley Quinn is a great character, but every evil woman doesn't have to have been an abused woman with Stockholm syndrome. You know what I mean? Like I just don't buy it. And I don't buy it for Emma particularly. So I just don't like that story. Anyway, Shaw is still in the brig in Necrotia where it is revealed in a retcon that he murdered Shinobi off panel at some point (laughs) because no one has bothered to use Shinobi for years. You know, he's like, do list. He was like, take out the laundry, kill my son. He pops up here as a Celine zombie because where did Shinobi go? And the answer is, he goes, I killed you myself. And Shinobi's like, well, I'm back. Leland is also there. Celine sends Leland and Shinobi after him. And he teams up with the warden of the brig, Danger, to fight them off, which is kind of fun. But he doesn't do much else for that story. Then there is the plot where Emma wipes his mind, which we were talking about Earlier, basically, she realizes that she can't keep this from Namor forever. Mm -hmm. And that if Namor finds out that Shaw is alive... He's going to be pissed, yeah. And they need to be allied with Atlantis because Utopia is an island. Also... She just doesn't want Namor to be pissed at her, honestly. So, (laughs) because she likes him. And so she takes Shaw to China, where he breaks free, but she is ultimately able to defeat him and telepathically wipe all of his memories. Right. And doesn't, at some point, Phantom X try and drop him in a volcano? Yeah, but... I just think that's funny. We'll get to that in a Phantom X episode, I guess, someday when I have to do that. (laughs) Um, The big thing is that Emma says to him, you always said you were a self-made man. Now it looks like you get a chance to prove it. So she lets him free in the rural fields of China to make something of himself as a complete amnesiac. Right. And that is the merciful end that she gives him rather than executing him. That leads into the James Asmus run on Generation Hope in 2012. He's refound. Right. The Five Lights and Hope Summers, who are. Is this not uh, Gillen? No, it's after Gillen leaves. Oh, okay. Hmm. It's Generation Hope 13, which is James Asmus's first issue. Oh, right, right, right. Sorry. That's okay. There's a, a changeover in within the... The cover says new creative team. So it's like, right. it, this is part of the Regenesis event where they're relaunching everything right before Avengers vs. X-Men blows everything up. Right. 
He is an amnesiac in China who falls under the sway of an arms dealer or war profiteer or whatever you want. A very Shaw-type character named Jin Billion, who, or I assume that's an alias, but he's sort of cornering the war profit market in China. And he uses Sebastian as a suicide bomber because Sebastian can take a suicide vest and blow up a building and then get back up because he absorbs all the kinetic energy. Hope and her friends are like, we have to help this guy. And when they bring him back to Utopia, Emma and Cyclops are like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) And they throw him back in the brig and Hope is like, what the fuck? So Hope goes and reads his file and is like, okay, he did help create the Sentinels. He did help create Dark Phoenix. He did try to kill my dad a bunch. But aren't we all about second chances or whatever? So she lets him out of prison. I mean, it's pr- it's almost exactly the, the Magneto defense. It's like, it is. Yeah. It's no like, this isn't the, the same, same guy, yeah. right? Like you can't be punishing this amnesiac guy who has heroically helped us for what he did before you mind wiped him. That's not really cool to do. At the same time, there is a whole thing going on with the Stepford Cuckoos that leads everyone to turn on hope for a minute Emma is one of those people who turns on Hope suddenly and Shaw defends Hope, which compels her to give him the file and he reads all about himself and then decides that he does need to make amends so he becomes an official member of Hope's team for the rest of that book and just walks around shirtless doing heroic (laughs) stuff and uh, looking sexy, and it's just weird. This is a weird era in the history of the X-Men. He is then one of the people who is taken into custody by the Avengers during Avengers versus X-Men because he is technically a student of the X-Men. And it's all the students who are remanded to Avengers custody, which includes just this like 40-year-old muscle-bound <laughs> former He's a, he's a lifetime learner. He is able to escape by convincing the Avengers to let him have a book in his cell. I love this. Which he then slams against his head over and over and over again until he builds up enough kinetic energy to explode the yeah. cell. It's so funny because, like, Madison Jeffries is so smug about, like, I've completely neutralized him. And he's like, can I have a book? And then he just goes full Monty Python and just starts bapping himself in the head and smashes out. And then later when they're in the sewers and Jeffries is like, I'm just going to electrocute you. I'm not going to punch you. (laughs) He's like, I can absorb that too, dum-dum. Yeah. So he breaks up to the surface, but that's when Soraya Dust is able to get through to Laura Kinney about how they need to be allowed to go free to make their own choices about this conflict. And Laura convinces the Avengers to release the students that they've taken into custody, including Shaw, who they release. But the Avengers are like, if you make one wrong like because so at this point he's fully outed as a mutant right? right like this is important for the krakoa era is like everybody now knows sebastian shaw is that guy he helped fund the sentinels but he is a mutant yada 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 but here with amnesiac heroic sebastian they're like you know what fine you can go but if you make one mistake we are sending you directly to the raft <laughs> and he's like 
okay and just like leaps into the sea and swims away so good for him then he is out of commission for quite some time that story is in 2012 and he doesn't pop up again until 2016 in cullen bunn's uncanny x-men where suddenly abruptly in a complete somehow palpatine returns but in this case (laughs) it's shaw just has his memories back and is once again the black king of the hellfire club right he ends up working with magneto and with the uncanny avengers Anybody who can help with the M-Pox situation, because it is now Inhumans versus X-Men time, and we don't have to talk about that on this podcast, but he does show up for other mutants, which is kind of cool of him, I guess. He ends up helping Zorn rule in Nutian after Hydra conquers America in Secret Empire, but that doesn't super last. And then that leads into Mothervine in Cullen Bunn's X-Men Blue, where a new little cabal of conspirators, Sebastian, Emma, Claudine, Havoc, who has been corrupted by Wanda's spelling Axis, and Bastion all band together to use a nanomachine virus called Mothervine that they've isolated from the Ultimate Universe, the remnants of it. God, I don't remember any of this stuff. Guess what? None of it fucking matters. The idea is that it's going to repower mutants and fix the decimation, and it causes wild secondary mutations in people. So this is like when Toad gets his fire tongue and Wolfsbane can suddenly turn into five wolves instead of one and all of that. Shaw develops the power to absorb kinetic energy from the air around him, and so he doesn't need to be struck, which makes him way more powerful able to kick the shit out of just about anybody including magneto who's like i don't like any of this i don't think this is a stable secondary mutation i think you guys are crazy and heads out turns out that he's super right because shaw's body is rejecting mother vine and it's actually like basically just the xl plot in peter david's x factor all over again where Pietro used the Terrigen Mist to re-empower people and then it made them crazy and explode. Mm -hmm. This is basically that, and he's just not doing well. Then we get, because this is when Emma is on the outs with everybody because of Inhumans versus X-Men, we get the Leah Williams one-shot X-Men Black Emma Frost, where she manipulates the X-Men into helping her unseat Shaw and become Black King and Lord Imperial herself. Great issue that means nothing because it is right before (laughs) the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, in which Hickman does write a scene hilariously where Charles and Eric go to Emma and are like, so we need Shaw. She's like, I just got him out. And, you know, it's funny. That leads us into Krakoa, where Charles and Eric feel that it's essential that Shaw be on board. The status quo that is established in Jerry Duggan's Marauders is that the Hellfire Trading Company that Emma establishes has three facets, white, black, and red. The white suit, run by Emma, is managing the diplomatic relationships between Krakoa and 
other countries with regard to the trade of the Krakoan medicine. Right. She does the legal side. The black suit led by Sebastian is covering the black market, the Madripoor trade, and all of the countries that won't fulfill the treaty, but where people still want to illegally acquire the medicine, and also to tamp down on pirates who are stealing and fencing the medicines, etc. Shaw is going to handle the illegal activities and keep Emma's hands clean by comparison. The third branch is the red branch and Sebastian wants to place Shinobi in charge. He has Shinobi resurrected because Shinobi had briefly come back. Shinobi came back inexplicably. Somehow Shinobi Shaw returned in Rosencanny and then committed suicide with a hand through his face rather than bow to Emma Frost. So he gets resurrected and Shaw has carefully had his backup edited so that he doesn't remember (laughs) a lot of key things. Yeah. He wants to put forth Shinobi as the Red King. But before he can manage it, Emma has already scooped him and has gotten everyone to approve Kate Pride as the new Red Queen, who will manage the Marauders squad that polices both the legal and illegal channels, that like is the enforcement arm. The privateers, essentially. Yes, exactly. And that's the core premise of Marauders, is them jockeying for power throughout. And eventually, Sebastian conspires with Hominus Verendi, the mutant-hating humans who have seized control of Madripoor, and their UN liaison, Donald Pierce, to have Kate Pride killed, which he thinks will have big dividends because as far as they are aware, she can't be resurrected due to her power disrupting various Krakoan things. Right. It does take a while for her to be resurrected. When she is, she doesn't remember what happened because that's how Krakoan backups work. And it's not until Lockheed, who he also thought he had killed, returns that they're able to telepathically assess via Lockheed what had happened. And they get their big Kill Bill style revenge on Sebastian, where Emma shoots him with a version of the neutralizer gun. Lockheed rips his eye out and eats it. And they... Beat the shit out of him. Verendi had planned to poison a shipment of Krakoan drugs and hurt Krakoa's reputation. And so Emma is like, you would have let that happen in your hubris. I've given you some of the poisoned medicine. And it paralyzes him. She basically is like, you work for me now. And if you're good... In a little while, I'll kill you and let you resurrect without... Now, there were some complaints that this is a kind of an ableist storyline, and I don't disagree, but I also think that Emma Frost would do this. So I just think I just uh, don't... (laughs) I'm going to use my... My cripple privilege. Yeah. How do you, as an amputee who walks with a prosthesis, feel about the ableism of this storyline? So, like... On the one hand, the imposition of a disability as punishment is kind of problematic. On the other hand, it's one of the few things that I think could have actually maybe changed Shaw as a person if he hadn't been let up so soon. It's the first time 
since he was 18 and those gownies tried to beat up the townie and his power manifested that his physicality hasn't been able to get him out of any situation. He's vulnerable, he is dependent, and that changes you as a person. I can give historical examples from the left and the right. Sure. FDR and George Wallace, like, you know. Yeah. It does something to your your worldview. It makes you reflect, and it does, in this case, make him reflect. And as you say, it's pretty quick, and part of the problem is that because of COVID, every book in the X-Men line is, like, four or five issues shorter than it should be that was coming out at this time. So, like, the Shinobi plot goes nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That was clearly the first casualty of you have four fewer issues than you thought, which is a shame because Sebastian hires Fenris to be the Black Knight. Yeah, that could have been funny. And that all could have been really funny, but it never really goes anywhere until Teeny yeah. deals with it in X Corp. But that's just clearly because the plot was cut for yeah. time. And I think part of what was also cut for time was Sebastian's time as a cripple. Yeah. I mean, it's very conspicuous timing-wise because they're about to go get their revenge on Shaw and then they have to stop for a minute because Ten of Swords has to happen for two months and then they go get their revenge on Shaw. And it's like, this was supposed to happen before Ten of Swords. Pretty cool. You know, it's just, there's lots of COVID scheduling problems. So I think he was supposed to be in the chair for longer. And it's also kind of an interesting parallel to Charles, right? Yes. In that sense, visually. But it doesn't last super long. He is back to his normal level of ability after the Hellfire Gala. What it has made him do is reflect back on Lourdes Chantel. Yes, he develops a mission. Well, I think he is suddenly, in his physical dependence and physical weakness, I think he reflects on the way he used his strength to control her physically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense. And has regrets about it and he says to emma that he wishes she could be resurrected but he knows that she died before the upgraded cerebro began taking the backups right and this is before the waiting room and yes so this is a key data point in how krakoan resurrection works because we now know exactly the window of when it was maybe now the waiting room has made this all irrelevant but when it was possible we know that tommy the morlock and harry leland were resurrectable so that's uncanny 210 is tommy and a little bit earlier is leland in the nimrod story in central park but that lordis can't be resurrected and that story you can place in roughly 1979 in terms of like publication temporally. Mm-hmm. So it's just a good cutoff. Anyway, Emma's like, I really liked Lourdes. It, that is a shame. And Sebastian's like, well, wait, what if we had one of the people who can time travel, because we've got a couple of those, take a Cerebro unit back in time? Couldn't it get a backup of her? And Emma then has to say, so funny story. <laughs> <laughs> And this is where Jerry unfridges Lourdes Chantel. Brilliant move. Oh, yeah. Great choice. And I think this character is going to have dividends in the future. She already is having them. But I think that it's really good to have her around. The real genius of it is it's part of a story about Emma's 
rich white woman feminism, right? right? Like we flashback, Klaus Janssen draws these scenes, which are really cool. Uh, It's just cool to have like, Mm -hmm. I know Jerry was really excited to work with Klaus Janssen. We flashback to that gala from Out With The Old and to immediately before it. And we see that the throttling that happens in that story is not an isolated incident. Sebastian has been growing frustrated with Lourdes's attempts to advise him against what he's doing. And he has struck her a couple times. She goes to Emma with a black eye and is like, I can't do this anymore. I need you to help me get out. Will you help me like woman to woman? And Emma at the time as a very... 80s. I mean, this is this goes back to the Annie Nascenti X Men classic backup, where yes. she explains yes. her philosophy to that waitress of like, you know, I wear this uniform because it empowers me. I yeah, have very control Camille over men. Paglia very version. Paglia. So yes, Emma's in her Camille Paglia era, and her solution is: I've done work for the Kingpin here and there. I know he's looking for a teleporter. So she telepathically, it is retconned, makes Sebastian believe Lourdes is killed by that sentinel and actually spirits her away to Wilson Fisk's office in Manhattan, where she then sells Lourdes to the kingpin. Right. And this feeds into um, Devil's Devil's Reign. Yeah. Which the Devil's Reign X-Men three-issue miniseries that Jerry wrote is one of the best Emma Frost stories ever. And it's building on her relationship with the Kingpin, why she thought this was a good thing to do with Lourdes. Lourdes isn't in it, but it's more about Emma's other sins while working for the Kingpin. It's just essential in that she did save Lourdes, but she also sent Lourdes into a really bad situation. Yes. And Lourdes was a woman who spoke English as a second language, was without any resources now, was in hiding from her very powerful boyfriend, and was now beholden entirely to another powerful abusive man who then used her for evil purposes. It's an example of the evil white queen Emma having a moment of conscience, but still being unable to extricate herself from those systems of power that are patriarchal ultimately at the end of the day. It's contrasted with a plot where Emma's daughters, the Stepford Cuckoos, take it upon themselves to try to rehabilitate Wilhelmina Kensington, one of the Hominus Ferendi kids, because they invade her mind and discover that she was molested by her father. That storyline, I said to Jerry when it was coming out, I was like, you're going to catch hell for this one. Yeah, it was pretty controversial. Not everyone's going to like it, and not everybody did like it. Here's the thing that I think is important about it. The cuckoos are wrong to do what they do in the same way that Emma was wrong. Yes, it is a very similar move. In both cases, they liberate sort of this woman to maybe have a better life, but they do it in a very paternalistic way that is not necessarily the most productive thing. And I think that that story is smart i do think that if you're someone who just doesn't think that parent-child incest is something you want in your comics then you know that's fair yeah but i do think that the parallel of this is how we free women from abusive men is it is well done right 
what matters is that in the present, Emma goes to get Lourdes because Lourdes has been in hiding all this time. And Emma's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to just bring her back into the fold. Right. We have Krakoa now. We have Krakoa now. And she was one of the first people who wanted mutant solidarity. That's what she's trying to impress upon Sebastian when he's funding the Sentinels. So Emma's like, it doesn't really make sense for Lourdes not to be here. There's a couple scenes with Shaw, who is just devastated by the knowledge that not only did Lourdes survive, but that she left him because he abused her. It makes him completely rethink the last 30 years of publication. And he's in a bad way. He's drinking a lot. He's like drunk on uh, Araco. And he ends up meeting up with, uh, with Kate and Emma there in their little Star Wars adventure. Then he and Emma push to move Harry Leland up the resurrection queue because Leland is one of the only people who's ever proven effective against a Nimrod, and Nimrod is now active. And also, Krakoa needs a representative at the UN. Harry is a lawyer who's very intelligent and knows all of the big, important people. So they put him forward, and it's approved, and it's a nice reunion. Sebastian clearly has a deep friendship with Leland in a way that we didn't get to see. Right. And it is finally revealed, like the payoff finally happens. Emma has taunted Sebastian about this a couple of times over the course right. of Marauders. But Sebastian reveals without hesitation to Shinobi that Leland is his biological father, that his mother was very close to Sebastian and Harry, and that Shaw took responsibility for the baby because he had the money and yada, yada, yada. And Leland was dead. This is a sliding timescale issue because Leland yeah, wasn't actually little... dead at the time, but like you just have to roll with it. Yeah. Roll with it. So that's cute because Harry is really excited to have this like adult son with his power set, and Shinobi is just like, what? Get away from me. <laughs> yeah, like, which is fun. And I'm excited to see that come up in the future whenever people use them again. That's around when Inferno kicks off. Yeah. So I'd like to rewind for, for yeah, just rewind. a sec. So I want to talk briefly about how Shaw is used as a a representative of like a certain vision of capitalism in the Hoxpox Krakoa era. We're going to get to that in the Q&A. Oh, okay. I'll save it for then. Yeah, there's some really good questions and I don't want you to to blow your capitalism wad just yet. Because we're about to be done and then we're going to go to the (laughs) Q&A. So Inferno happens, the Moira stuff is revealed, all of that shakes out, Destiny's back, etc. Right after that, Jerry's run on Marauders ends with issue 27. Emma brings Lourdes to Krakoa and Sebastian, all he wants is for Lourdes to forgive him. She wants nothing to do with him. Like, Mm -hmm. what I like about this story is it's not, it doesn't say Lourdes should forgive him. Yeah, it's not a happy ending. No, well, it's not a romantic happy ending for them. You know what I mean? But she shows up and she is more self-assured now and she's not afraid of him. And she's like, I want what's mine. I want to be the black queen of hellfire trading. I want you out. And he agrees. Mm-hmm. His one request is that she keep Shinobi as black bishop. 
and she agrees to that. And we get a great data page where he <laughs> privately that. is like encouraging each of them to Fuck act the against the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause he's like, we got to keep the Hellfire Club stuff going. Like he sends Lourdes a note warning her about Shinobi's like treacherous attitude. And then also sends Shinobi a note, like here's how to get under Lourdes' skin, which is fun. But he abdicates from his position at Hellfire Trading to focus on his duties to the Quiet Council. And Lourdes takes control of his arm of the company. We've since seen Lourdes palling around with Emma. We just saw them pop up in Captain America. That was fun. Which was super fun. Emma was just like being a huge bitch. She like is casually threatening things. And Lourdes is like, she really will do that. Just FYI. (laughs) It was like a fun... We see Lourdes is reading like a People's History of the East India Company, which I thought was very funny because, you know, you can tell that she's a little more woke, shall we say, than Emma. Emma's a little bit naive about like, we will be greeted as liberators. Right. You know, with Lourdes, it's like she is othered to the point that she thinks about these things, like racially othered, but she also is at the end of the day European. Yes. It's not like Spain hasn't done plenty no. of its own. <laughs> yeah, like, I was going to say, know, the, the history and colonialism. of Spanish colonialism right. and shipping, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, I, I do think there's stuff that, I'm just, that character has a lot of potential and it's such a blank slate, you could do just about anything with her at this point. So I'm excited to see where that goes. And that catches us basically up to the present. In Sins of Sinister, Shaw has been compromised like the rest of the Quiet Council by Mr. Sinister and we'll see where that goes. So I think now is a good time to get to the questions. We got a bunch of questions about Sebastian Shaw, which excites me whenever like the characters I'm not sure are going to get a bunch of questions get a bunch of questions. And I'm just going to dive right in. Robel Bienna writes, hello, Connor and Steven. First, Connor, thank you for the podcast. I'm still making my way through your backlog, but I've loved everything I've heard so far, especially the episodes in Cyclops, Storm, Spiral, Kate Pride, and anything with Anthony Oliveira, Spencer Ackerman. You've got me reading comics again. Perhaps more importantly, you've got me rereading comics, which I never expected. Without further ado, my question about Sebastian Shaw is, what is his angle? Why would he routinely work against the best interests of mutants when he seems to love being one? I understand he wants money and power, and for some people, there's never enough. I even understand that members of oppressed groups can fail to identify with those groups inside with the oppressor but Shaw hardly seems self-hating or like he's acting under duress does he simply think so highly of his scheming intellect that he thinks he'll eventually outplay the Ned Buckman, Stephen Langs, Paris Seville's and Donald Pierce's of the world how does a man who amasses wealth and power in the shadows while shaping the world to his whims fail to see that a mutant who funds sentinels is going to have them come through his door or roof even if he were pure Manichaean evil the Marvel Universe is full of lucrative evil plots for him to pursue without risking himself and getting poor Lordis killed I know I know she got bad or never died but thanks and does being a black immigrant shield me from flat scan status p.s connor i was born in ethiopia and raised in texas and i fucking dare you to try an accent yeah that's a little ambitious for me rebellion not quite corbeau on the discord here's what i'll say about that when i say flat scans i do think like cishet white man is kind of what i'm implying but if you are a person of color who identifies in a positive way with being a straight guy and therefore a flat scan i don't want to take that from you so really it's up to you basically choose your own adventure on that Stephen, what do you think about that why is it that shaw goes to this angle rather than you know teaming up with the magia or whatever like right. there are other things you could do So, as we said already, a huge part of it is this monumental arrogance, but I also think he doesn't see himself as part of a community. His mutant power makes him, in his mind, a superior man. Mm -hmm. 
But there's a, a great quote from, I have in my notes, Excalibur 46, where he says, the more mutants I meet, the less I want to be one. Mm. Like, yeah. I don't think he's self-hating, but it's like... Well, I think he finds Xavier's whole deal, like, exhausting. Yes. And I think there's almost an element of, like, Roy Cohn in Angels in America. Yes. Roy Cohn's exactly the right example, because I think that Sebastian Shaw has the same problem that a lot of white gay men have, actually, which is that if not for this one thing about you, you would be the most powerful class of people in the world. And it's something that you theoretically can hide. I mean, like some people can anyway. I'm not particularly subtle, but there are people out there capable of being in the closet. And Shaw is closeted as a mutant until like the Utopia era. Right. And because he's able to hide that and just assume the position, so to speak, of a rich cishat white man to the general public, he doesn't feel a need to be in solidarity with mutants. I also think that it goes back to his ultimate plan to own mutancy as an IP. Like, he wants every mutant to be under his control. Mm-hmm. He is the pink capitalism of mutancy in that <laughs> way. Like, he wants to have the resource, but only to do the non-radical things that he wants it to do, right? Right. Alan Valle writes, Hi, Connor and Professor Adewell. First, I want to say thank you so much to Connor for being such a delight to listen to every week and even providing me with the courage and impetus to decolonize the pronunciation of my last name. Because much like you, Connor, if I'm going to be hate crime for my ethnicity, I'd like to be counted among them. It's Alan Valle, not Alan Valley, though I will also accept the French-esque valet. My question for the both of you is, what the heck kind of 80s weeb was Sebastian Shaw? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, who names their own best friend's child Shinobi and expect to not be ridiculed for it. We've all joked about naming a kid Sephiroth Jones or Goku Vegeta, but he actually did it. Much like Ichigo <laughs> D. Jaeger Guts Kenpachi Cruz. Real person article linked below. There's an article linked below. Yeah. Did Claremont just not have access to the bad VHS subs of the time? Should Phyllisider of the Year Sebastian have had child services called on him from day one? What does Harry Leland think about this name? Or did they come up with it during a coke orgy? Thank you so much for everything you do. And until the wheels fall off, make mine cerebro with all the love in my heart. Alan Valle, DJ Positron on Twitter while it's still around. I think that there is absolutely nothing more classically rich white guy in the 80s. Yeah. Or the 70s, which it would have been in the slide. Like, if you think about when Shinobi would have been born in this sliding timescale moment. And that sort of fits in with the whole kind of like Michael Crichton, Rising Sun paradigm. Yeah. And I think that there is nothing more rich white guy of that moment than having a half Japanese baby with a sexy Japanese lady and naming him Ninja Shaw. I think that that's really... And Shinobi, I mean, there's alliteration. It's Shusha. Like, Sebastian right. is, you know, he's about like the excitement and the brand is it ridiculous yes yeah i also think it's really really funny though it's like chris claremont's weebiest gesture on his way out the door and i find it really endearing honestly but your mileage may vary i understand if asian readers do not find that name super great i think harry has never heard of a shinobi and so hasn't even thought about it being weird he probably is just assuming that it's a name that their Japanese lady love 
gave the baby. Yeah, I would say that, like, Harry strikes me as someone who is, like, went to Japan on one business trip, and Shaw is someone who, like, owns a couple kimonos. Right, and, well, he loves a house robe. I mean, we've seen that. Right. I've seen the cover art, is Tessa putting, like, a brocade robe over his shoulders. I'm sure he has several formal yukata or something in his closet, the implication made in Marauders, insofar as Jerry was able to push it in this comic without, you know, talking to corporate, I would imagine, <laughs> is that they were having threesomes with this woman. Yeah. And that it wasn't super clear whose child he was. And that with Leland dead, when she called Sebastian up and was like, I had a baby, by the way. He was like, well, uh, I guess I'll claim the, the baby. But, you know, yeah. it wasn't super. And then she died. So, you yes. know. And he was not super. We don't even nice have a name for this woman, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, she is just one of the. I think he calls her a trollop. Uh, not in Marauders. He's actually very. Okay. I mean. He calls her. No, back when. Yes. He was not nice in the more adversarial series. But on Krakoa, he says that your mother was very important to me and to Henry. Oh, oh, I've got a false memory then. Sorry. That's okay. It happens. These things happen. Desis Narrows writes, Hello, Connor and Steven. Apologies in advance for asking a heavier question. If that's not the kind of episode this is, please skip this one. I'm not going to skip it because Cerebro does it all. So we can talk about this heavier stuff also. Marauders 22 pushes the Shaw character over a precipice that I think makes him difficult, if quite interesting, to use going forward. In this issue, he's shown to have beaten Lourdes, giving her a black eye. While we can certainly infer a lot of nasty things about Shaw in previous stories, I think this one might be the most explicit. Shaw is a perpetuator of domestic violence. Without unloading too much onto a couple of internet strangers, I've had various forms of abuse happen in my family, to me, to other family mm. members, etc. Sometimes I wish that people who had done those things would just disappear. But they don't. They still exist, they still live their lives, and their victims have to somehow rationalize that. And if they aren't going to just disappear, I can't do anything but hope that A, they are not around me, and B, they somehow become better people, get the help they need, and don't hurt anyone else. The premise of Krakoa is that they've made space for mutants of all sorts. Obviously, they dealt with Fenris quite quickly, but Shaw is still around, alongside a few of his abuse survivors. Shaw has the opportunity to go forward and be a better person, but do you think superhero comics are properly equipped to deal with the sorts of rehabilitative mm. growth an abuser needs to go through to become a different sort of person? This isn't a Hank Pym comic book craziness situation. Right. Shaw is just a terrible, awful man. Best, Desus Neros, Delon the Shi'ar Magister in the Discord, he, him. Great question, and thank you for sharing something so personal. Whether or not a superhero comic can deal with this is up to you. I'm not going to tell you, be cool with it. Like, that's not my place. For me, as candidly someone who has never been a victim of domestic violence, I think the story works because it doesn't reward Shaw for his remorse. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't imply that Lourdes should want to be around him at all. And it doesn't diminish anything that he did. It also, importantly, is drawing on him putting his hands on her in that backup back right. in the 80s. So it's not something that Jerry introduced to the character. It's a complication to the character that's been there for a really long time. On Krakoa, it is more complicated to have these villains in circulation because we have to work with them. We have to cooperate. That's how Krakoa works. Mm -hmm. Sebastian Shaw, in that way, is more like Quentin Quire, a character I've expressed a lot of discomfort with. He is a villain in the way that real people are villains in the real world. 
you can laugh off Apocalypse or Mr. Sinister or Celine because they're cartoon characters at the end of the day. Even if genocide is real and eugenics is a real idea and all of this stuff, Mr. Sinister is silly. He's a comic book character. Sebastian Shaw being a rich guy who owns a sex club and beats his girlfriend sometimes when she pisses him off is very real. And so I understand if that's a bridge you just don't want to cross. I think the way that it works for me is that if we are to believe that Krakoa is about rehabilitative justice, is about a non-carceral approach, and this mutant amnesty of will you be a productive member of society, then we will have you. If Shaw's not abusing anyone now, and he's respecting Lourdes's wishes, and giving her what she wants, and staying away from her, unless she changes her mind on him staying away from her, I think that's actually a good model for how these situations could be handled in reality. They entered mediation, you know, and like found a way to make both of them feel, if not happy, okay about existing in the same nation, in the same workplace occasionally. And I think it is a more mature and complex resolution than we would usually get in a superhero story about this kind of thing. And I think it makes sense that just like the Wilhelmina Kensington story, it's not going to rub everyone the right way. But I think it's interesting. And I, I think what you said about wanting these people to be better is part of it. Like, I don't believe in a binary of abusers and non-abusers. I think that people do bad things to other people. And there are levels to that, obviously. And putting your hands on someone like that is a big level that not everybody does but does it damn you forever to being a pariah if you don't do anything to make amends for what you've done perhaps but i think that the key is our understanding that he knows of all his crimes what he did to lordis was the worst because he spent years thinking about getting revenge for her about what she would want about how she should be with him but she was taken from him by ned buckman and all of this and it turns out actually she left because you're an asshole and that is the first real challenge to sebastian shaw's arrogance mm -hmm. and so for me it works i don't know Stephen. what do you think i, I mean i think that gets at some of the, like, unsatisfying tensions of things like amnesty and restorative justice and non-carceral systems, is that if it is about, like, harm reduction and getting especially the victim to a place of healing, that is not always going to come with a satisfying sense of, like, moral retribution. Right. And, you know, hopefully, Shaw has been put in a place where he can do less harm to people. I think what I need, and it's just there needs to be room for it in a story, I need a scene with Tessa and Lourdes. Yes. 
Because I think that's the missing piece right now is that we haven't seen them interact. And they interact in Lourdes's original story in the backup. And despite Sage's role on Krakoa being a pretty major recurring role, I mean, from what I can tell from Solicits, it seems like pretty soon she will be taking over Command of X-Force. Thank God. Here, here. Ideally, no X-Force, but if there has to be an X-Force, I'd rather have Sage leading it than just about anybody else, right? I think it has been conspicuous that Sage has not been part of, and it's because she's in a different book. Like, she's in X-Force, so she's not in Marauders when they get their revenge on Shaw. But it feels weird that she's missing. Yeah, she doesn't get her restorative justice moment. I need her to have that moment with Shaw and with Lourdes and with Emma. Like, I I just need that. And I think that's maybe because I'm just very invested in that character. But I like all four of those characters, and I would like to see it. I would like to see... I mean, I also need Sage to have her moment with Charles. But Mm -hmm. that's a whole other kettle of fish. And who knows, maybe Fall of X will involve that. I have no idea. But, yeah, I think that Shaw is in a position now that is what we would hope can happen with abusive people, that they can take stock of their behavior and decide they're going to behave differently and endeavor to behave differently. And that's sort of the dream of Krakoa at the end of the day and the Krakoan amnesty is that like all of us were reacting to this unprecedented form of oppression that we all experienced as mutants that was specific and strange and had no exact analog in the history of bigotry and prejudice and we all did weird things to survive and maybe we all need to just try again together and forgive each other I think that if you're going to do that for characters like Bishop or Emma, who we love, who've done bad things, we also have to be willing to do it for Sebastian Shaw. If he's willing to walk the walk, which so far he's doing. After his big drubbing at the hands of Emma and Kate. But I think the Lordis thing was key for him. This is a form and content moment. It recontextualizes every Sebastian Shaw story for us, but it also makes Sebastian Shaw think back on everything he did after Lourdes died and be like, wow, none of that would have made her love me again, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. So I hope it's not too triggering for you to read about this character, D. And again, thank you for writing in. But I have hope that this will lead to interesting stories in the future that could model methods of healing that might help readers with experiences like yours i don't know we'll see it's a heavy responsibility to put on the writers of superhero comics which is also part of your question but i think that the thing about x-men that makes it so exciting and is part of why this show exists is that it tackles social problems in a way that the genre doesn't always and certainly domestic violence is a social problem that needs to be addressed so you know could be worse in terms of how it's handled is sort of how I feel about it. But your mileage may vary, and I, and I completely respect that. 
Dallas Taylor writes, hello, Connor and esteemed guests. It's been a while since I've written in. I'm excited to hear your thoughts on Sebastian Shaw. With one of the core principles of Krakoa being amnesty for the traditionally villainous characters, I often find myself surprised by how much fans don't like when those villainous characters act, well, villainous. I've never felt much of a problem with villains acting like villains, but I know it's something that others feel differently about. My question for you is, what makes a villainous character in their story beats for you fun and engaging for the story rather than problematic and off-putting? How do you personally like to see characters like Sebastian used in modern stories with all their baggage from the past? Best regards, Dallas Taylor from the Comics Collective? Great question. I think that the core difference is a story like Out With The Old with Sean Lourdes versus a story like that Matt Fraction, Greg Land story where he beats those women to death for fun. Mm -hmm. It's about how these subjects are presented. It's about how villainy is presented. I don't like Frank Thierry's weapon axe because it just feels like we're in the muck rolling around for the sake of rolling around in the muck. I have the same problem with a lot of work by Mark Miller. Mm -hmm. I have the same problem with a lot of work by Rick Remender. It's a style that I just don't vibe with. And I talked to Frank Thierry about it. Frank Thierry and I have become kind of friendly. He said to me, he was like, they asked for a villain book and I wrote a villain book. They asked for a serious fucked up villain book and I wrote it. Mm. And he did. But... There is a fun factor to Claremont-style villains and even to Morrison-style villains like Cassandra Nova and Sublime who are genuinely terrifying and, and heinous that I think you need because this genre at the end of the day is escapist and I think when it feels prurient is the problem. If it feels like we're supposed to be titillated in some way by Shaw beating women, I think that's a problem. Right. And that's not how I feel about Shaw generally. Similarly, I don't have a problem thinking Mr. Sinister is hilarious, whether or not our Sinister worked for the Nazis, which I still think Kieran has made it clear. I mean, it never worked in the timeline, but I think Kieran's given us a great out that that wasn't our Sinister. Doesn't super matter to me because he's ridiculous. I feel this way about Fenris. Fenris is a great example. And just go back to that episode, I guess, mm -hmm. with Spencer Ackerman, if you want more on my thoughts on this. I think it is important to lampoon people like Fenris. And I think it is important also to depict that kind of depravity because that helps us vent it, right? Like this kind of shit that's so evil when you see it on the page, you're like, and fuck that kind of person, you know? And I just think that that's healing in a way. Mm -hmm. But I also like, I love Fenris. When Fenris pop up in a story, I get excited because I know they're going to do something horrific and they're going to get the shit kicked out of them. And that's fun. Like, there's no reason not to enjoy the Red Skull if you want to enjoy the Red Skull. He's a Nazi who's so evil, his head is a skull head that's red. <laughs> like, you know, I just think that this genre fundamentally, and to get, like, real macro, this genre was created by a bunch of Jewish people in the wake of the Holocaust saying, well... Let's laugh about it, I guess, which is also just been the like Jewish approach to dealing with yeah, I was untold say, it's horror a very forever. Sensibility. Yeah, it's very Borscht Belt, very Mel Brooks, and that is also my sense of humor. So I just to me it doesn't it doesn't factor in. I think that the thing you see in fandom that is a more recent internet style phenomenon is about not wanting your faves to be problematic. So it's very upsetting to some people that Emma is working with Shaw or that Charles is working with Sinister or whatever, because to them, 
that violates the purity of those characters and makes them immoral, which then means you can't like them because it's part of the general social media panopticon of whether you, the reader, are a good or moral right. person. And to me, that's not what fiction is for or about. And I just don't find that question interesting, personally. And I think that kind of criticism is childish, personally. Mm-hmm. So that's all I really have to say about that. I'm just over it. I'm sorry. You can't tell me I shouldn't like a vampire queen because she did a gig for Hydra. That's dumb. That's simply dumb. She's not real. None of them are real. Even Quentin, who makes me uncomfortable, is not real. Even Sebastian Shaw is not real. It's okay to think villains who are not real are fun characters to read about. End of story. You don't have to tie yourself in knots over it. Just say to the person who's giving you shit, not real. This person does not exist. And if they can't allow that to end the conversation, then you should just end the conversation by walking away. Right. Because it's not worth getting dragged into that kind of discourse loop. There's no way out of it. That's just a fundamental disagreement in principle as to what fiction is and as to how you should interact with art. If you and someone else are not compatible in that way, you're just not going to be compatible at the end of the day. Walt Llewellyn writes, hello, Connor, esteemed Stephen. I hope you've both had ample opportunity to pronounce Sebastian the same way that Matt Berry and your version of the ladies' mastermind pronounce illusion. We have not done a ton of it, but he is very Sebastian at times. With the possible exception of Cassandra Nova, Sebastian Shaw is the only mm. mutant supervillain I can think of who's truly reactionary. Sinister has his solipsistic focus on science and delightful schemes. The unreconstructed atavistic apocalypse wants to improve the fitness of the race. Even Celine cares more about finding the opportunity for her next big cape-swishing monologue more than any ideological program. Meanwhile, Shaw's mutant power is literally to arrest and redirect forward progress. Great observation. Mm -hmm. Both in-universe and from a meta perspective, just ask Shinobi, Shaw embodies the status quo, a Barry Lyndon cosplayer standing athwart history and yelling stop. Even as a metaphor for capitalist accumulation, Shaw's lust for money and influence doesn't amount to much in a world where real power can, say, terraform Mars overnight. Growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. My questions. One, why does Krakoa's ruling class put up with him? Within a queer mutant metaphor, Shaw is basically the rainbow Wayland Utani logo that pops up on Twitter. Very good. Whenever mega corporations celebrate Pride Month. That's what I was saying. He's the pink capitalism. There someone, Krakoa, I think, Krakoa Welcomes did it, made an Orcus Pride Month flag that was so funny. It was like the like hyper contemporary progress pride flag, too. Right, it was just right. like Orcus Very is good. on the ball. Judas Traveler doesn't miss a trick. Exactly. He's not exactly a trusted ally, and besides his wealth, he doesn't bring anything to the table that Emma doesn't immediately render redundant. Is there really nobody else, a mean blue lady currently sitting on the Quiet Council, for instance, with his underworld connections? Fuck this guy. <laughs> Here's the fact of the matter. Shaw's in the story because it's fun to have Shaw in the story. It's fun to see Emma and Shaw banter. Mm -hmm. It's fun to see Kate and Shaw banter. He's a fun character to have around for those reasons. And so everybody has to tolerate him. And we should just assume that he has actual tangibles that we just aren't aware of because right. we're not looking at the P&L spreadsheet. You know what I mean? And I think you just have to not worry about that at the end yeah. of the day. Because that's the story, is the answer to that question. They're not real people. Again, it's a function of a narrative. I would also say, I think there's an implication in Hoxpox that he is 
ultimately somewhat disposable. I think he's a patsy for Emma. I think the idea is that you let him handle all the black market stuff so that if we get caught, he can take the fall and not you who are our primary diplomat. So that's a valid use of him. And I think he's aware that that's what they're planning. And that's why he's being more careful about how he does it. Two, how long before Shaw pulls in Abigail Brand and sells his people out to Orcus? By funding the Sentinel program, Shaw's already proven himself to be, to quote his old pal Holocaust, a race trader. <laughs> He's got to see a percentage in changing teams, right? Anyhow, thanks for the incredible work you do. I always come away from Cerebro feeling entertained and like I've learned something new. The older I get, the more I know that's something to treasure best. Walt from the Black Casebook. Well, thanks, Walt, for writing in. I don't think that he would pull a brand because, I mean, specifically, brand has an ideology in a way that Shaw does right. not beyond she's personally a Richmond. Yes, she's a neocon and she's also a megalomaniac who believes that what she's doing is the important thing for world peace, whereas Shaw couldn't care, or galactic peace, whereas Shaw couldn't give a shit about anything besides amassing personal power and wealth. It's not right. in the service of anything greater. And I think Abigail Brand is delusional and is not actually Mm -hmm. acting in the service of anything greater, but she believes she is. And I think that's a distinct difference between them. Yeah. I also think that Shaw at the end of the day believes in the value of mutantdom as a value proposition. Yeah. So throwing in with Orcus, like Fenris is throwing in with Orcus, presumably after their exeunt in X Corp, because to Fenris, white supremacy is the most important thing. Right. To Shaw, there isn't really anything above mutantdom besides the almighty dollar, and he's making more money on Krakoa than he would anywhere else with those medicines. So I just don't see it. I don't think that Orcus has anything necessarily to offer him. That said, if anyone on the Quiet Council was going to betray Krakoa to Orcus, I would assume it would be him. So that's also just a potential future story, but I just, at the moment, don't think he would see the wisdom in it. Yeah. From an investment perspective. Yeah. He got pretty close with Hominus Ferendi and the Russian government and Madripoor. Like, arguably committed treason. Oh, not arguably. Actively committed treason. Well, is treason illegal on Krakoa if they only It's not one of the three laws. That's the thing that's fun about this. Everyone's like, but this isn't a good legal system. And I'm like, yeah, babes, it's a monthly comic book. It doesn't need to be a good legal system. It needs to create fun stories. Relax. Don't worry about it. The funny books. But yes, he did fully commit treason and dragon murder attempted. And, you know, they just got to let him cook. And it's because he has these intangibles that we don't get to see that are useful to them. But yeah, I mean, he has it in him. I just think that he doesn't see the yeah, value. Yeah, it wouldn't anymore. be Orcus. It, it would be. It would something. not be Orcus. That's the thing. It would be someone he feels he could control. And I don't think he believes that he could subvert Orcus in the same way that he subverted Senator Kelly or subverted Gyrick specifically. So that is, I think, what it is. Dr. Holly Schaefer Raymond of Temple University writes, Hi, Connor and Steve. Holly is next week's guest. So this is a fun preview. 
Holly writes, hi, Connor and Steve. I think one of the most richly weird moments in early Dawn of X is when Shaw describes himself to horticulture as a devourer of both men and women, a carnivore. Such a strange and pointed thing to say. I wonder if you have any thoughts about what this reveals about how Shaw conceptualizes the kind of post-scarcity logic of Krakoa. After all, what does accumulation mean in a land where everybody gets to live in comfort and health? What do the roles of predator and prey signify when everyone is provided for and big Renfair style turkey legs literally grow on trees? In other words, how does someone who lives his life, as we see in numerous issues and really saliently in his immortal X-Men spotlight issue by Kieran Gillen, as a kind of self-made apex predator, frame himself in a society where the theoretical lion theoretically lies down with the theoretical lamb? Can you imagine a trajectory or a story for him where he does manage to find a balance between his own self-fashioning as an avaricious carnivore in a world made for and by carnivores and the realities of Krakoan life that leads to happiness for both him and the people around him? Also, I know this line is often tied back to Duggan's eventual stuff gesturing at Shaw's sexual appetites. What does it mean for him to frame this potential bi or pansexuality in such bloody consumptive terms? Great question. Mm -hmm. The funniest thing about this line is that I didn't even clock it at the time. And it had to be pointed out to me like years later that like Sebastian Shaw just came out as bisexual to these old women. I didn't have my subtext glasses on that day, I guess. I just wasn't thinking about it. It's like, yeah, he's like devoured them all in the boardroom. I think that it adds an interesting layer to his interactions with women. It adds mm -hmm. something to his like neoclassical vibe also. Like the whole thing he's doing at the Hellfire Club is very in keeping with an Oscar Wildean or a Leicester Crowleyan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially Crowley. Yeah, and I think that it makes total sense to think that Shaw was fucking guys too. I like the idea that he and Leland have perhaps some kind of sexual relationship that is more mutualistic and respectful than his relationships with women, because I think that that adds an interesting complication to the character. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we're ever going to see that on page i mean i did joke sebastian shaw diversity win on an earlier episode of this podcast to the point where it became a running joke but like you know it is interesting to me and i think that lordis is again a game changer because when he realized that lordis was someone he chewed up and spat out which he didn't think she was he thought she was his great lost tragic love and when he realizes she's just another victim in his long line of prey mm -hmm. that it recontextualizes how he thinks about himself and that's why i'm interested to see where the character goes going forward something really interesting is there's a similar line by emma in an x-men unlimited story years earlier that also implies that emma is bisexual but in that story she refers to herself as an omnivore mm. and there's something interesting about the idea that emma is like do i want the meat or the veg right as opposed to shaw thinking it's all meat yeah I don't have like deeper thoughts on it beyond that, but I think it's interesting. I think that it adds something to the character that I'd love to write and explore, but you just have to be careful because if a character is so associated with abuse, if you lean into like, and they're queer, like that then becomes right. a little iffy, but I don't know. I think there's something there that could be interesting, particularly because I don't see him as someone who would ever have a relationship with men. Yes. I think he is polymorphously perverse, as they used to say. 
And while he would only ever be seen with a woman, he has these bonds, these male bonds that were very common in British high society also, mm-hmm. always. The sort of, we marry women and have children, but I have this childhood companion who I have this complicated relationship with. It's very in keeping with the other Victorian, Edwardian, Georgian stuff that the Hellfire Club is always marinating in. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I think it's neat. I'm glad Jonathan Hickman got that line through. The thing about corporate comics is a lot of the time it's about writing a line and seeing if standards and practices goes, excuse me, we have to ask corporate before you print this. And guess what? I don't think anybody checked. It's like when Teeny had Sunspot say, I like Boom Boom because she's sexy and I like Banshee because he's sexy. It got through somehow. And now Mm -hmm. if you want to say that's canonical evidence that Sunspot is bisexual, I would argue it's pretty much there on the page. So yeah, I mean, that's part of what queer representation is in work for hire is like, how far can you move the needle each time you get to do something? Mm -hmm. And is Shaw the one that we want? Maybe not, but like, are there lots of queer men who are abusive creeps like Sebastian Shaw? Sure. So I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, I would say, like, I I think there's two things about it that are great. One is the fact that it is a metaphor entirely based in consumption. Do you know what it reminds me of? I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Do you know what my favorite A Song of Ice and Fire book is? Guess. Uh, I'm going to guess Feast for Crows. You're correct. Good taste. Feast for Crows is my favorite for a couple different reasons. I think it is the most beautiful work of art as a self-contained novel rather than as part of a series of them. I think objectively it's not as like good a read as Storm of Swords, but I prefer it. And part of why I prefer it is because it is an examination of gender and power and all of mm-hmm. the weird things that these female characters are trying to do to exist in this patriarchal space. One of the wildest scenes in it is the lesbian sex scene that Cersei Lannister has. In it, she has this violent sexual encounter with her handmaiden, who's into it. Right. Insofar as, like, one can be into it when you're, you know, the power dynamic is obviously messed up. But we get Cersei's inner monologue, and all she's thinking about is, like, what if I had the power to be a rapist like my husband was? What if... I were a wild boar that was goring this woman from the inside out. And it's this really crazy, violent thing. That's what I feel when Shaw refers to himself as a carnivore. It's that. Yeah. With Cersei, I've always described her as like a prisoner blooding her hands on the bars of patriarchy. Yes. And it just, it's driven her a little bit crazy. I think as a study of gender she's really fascinating yeah so i think the fact that it is a metaphor of consumption even though he is living in you know fully automated luxury space communism kind of speaks to like he is out of place but i also think there's an element of dissociation like he doesn't say i have relationships with men and women right he doesn't say i fall in love with men and women It's, I consume them. And that takes away all of the risk and danger and and vulnerability and makes it about what he's, like, way more comfortable in in the context of the Hellfire Club. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. 
Lily Morales writes, Dear Connor and illustrious guest, longtime listener, first time writing in. I just have to start by thanking Dr. Adewell as you're the reason I first found the Cerebro podcast and got back into oh, reading wow. comic books. I follow your Tumblr for your excellent Song of Ice and Fire content, the Westerosi Economic Development Series being a particular favorite of mine. And once so someone asked you about Hank McCoy, you responded to the question with a link to the Beast episode of this podcast. After that incredible episode, I of course had to go back and listen to all the other episodes and then had to read House of X Powers of 10 to see what all the hype was about. I've been an avid listener of the podcast and reader of all the current X titles ever since. Truly appreciate both of you for renewing my love of X-Men and comics in general. That is delightful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Great cross-pollination. On to the actual question. Given that Krakoa has developed into a kind of socialist utopia, what purpose does a cutthroat capitalist like Shaw serve? Is he there just to be the convenient punching bag, symbolic of the evils of unchecked capitalism? Why have him around at all, let alone on the ruling council, when there are plenty of other business-minded mutants like Emma, Angel, and Monet that could fill his same role? Is it just to keep an eye on him and make sure he doesn't work against Krakoa's interests? It was interesting when they had to be the frontman for dealing with the black market side of the Hellfire Trading Company, but they haven't really done anything else with that. Feel free not to read this bonus question because it's kind of a cheat and not really about Shaw, but I would love to hear Mr. Adewell's thoughts. Because I love your economic development series, if you were Shaw, how would you develop Krakoa's economy? I don't see how depending on their flower drugs is a viable long-term strategy, as eventually human-made drugs will catch up. So how would you diversify? New plant-based textiles to replace synthetic ones that rely on petroleum? Or would they ever market some of the plant-based technology Forge is always inventing? Thank you both for the content you produce. It's brought me hours of enjoyment and sparked some of the best conversations I've ever had with friends and family. Sincerely, Lily Morales. Great letter. Okay, can I tee off on this? Get it all of it. Do whatever you want. So I think Shaw plays an interesting philosophical role as a particular kind of capitalist in Krakoa. In House of X number six, he is the one who says capitalism was one of the things man clearly got right. We need property rights. We need wealth. We need currency. Krakoa's unique system of essentially internal socialism and external state capitalism is something that was created essentially against Shaw in no small part because of Doug Ramsey. Mm. Like saying, hey, Krakoa is a person, not a place. You cannot own Krakoa. Right. Then in Marauders... Shaw is presented as both a sort of political antagonist to, to Kate and Emma for control of the Hellfire Trading Company, but as someone with a very different vision of capitalism, which is in, in Marauders number two, we learn that even though he is supposed to be handling the black market, he has been flooding humanity's rich first world market for a quick buck. He's essentially doing arbitrage to make short-term profit. This goes directly against what Emma wants, which is stable prices and political influence. And then in Marauders number three, where he's giving this speech to Shinobi about what's going on, he says, The aging top 1% controls 90% of the wealth. In five years, the opportunity will be lost. The drugs only prolong their lives for that long. By then, we will have bled them dry. And he describes it in Marauder 6 as the largest transfer of wealth the world will ever know. Now, this makes very short-term sense. Like, this is how you maximize profit margins for next quarter? Absolutely, yeah. 
But, but it's as a long term immortal country, it's a little bit insane. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, the aging top 1% owns 90% of the wealth. When they die, their heirs will also right. want to buy the drugs. You yes, stupid, no. <laughs> stupid man. Yeah. That's why Emma's whole thing is this trading company is about soft power. It is about establishing Krakoa in the world as indispensable. And you are fucking with the goose that lays the golden egg because you can't see past tomorrow. Right. This is not an econ podcast. So I'm just thinking about like the way it shakes out for me. What he's doing is giving us a window into how a hyper-capitalist would, on the go, have to adapt to these scenarios. Mm -hmm. And by dint of that, giving us commentary on how, like, if you're not someone who knows a ton about capitalism or global markets or how they function, Shaw illustrating how Krakoa has changed his operations helps explain to you as the reader how things have changed mm -hmm. in this scenario and how things therefore work in reality. So I think that that's a useful function. And then to answer the second question about economic development, I think that's what Teeny Howard did with X-Corp. Mm -hmm. X-Corp Pharma was like, okay, we're going to maintain our strategic advantage by continuing to develop and iterate and improve so that no one catches up. Yes. And then the second thing is the giant telecom project. Well, that was what I was about to say, is what was really smart in X-Corp was that Monet was like, what if we do a mutant circuit and give the whole world affordable high-speed internet? Right. That they can't replicate. Simply superior. You can't beat it. What then does that do? And so it was expanding out of the pharma space to constantly be innovating. And the reason that the Omega level mutants are constantly noted as Krakoa's great resource, it's not because of the power feats they can do in a battle with a supervillain. It's because of things like the terraforming of Mars. It's right. because nothing in the universe has measurably been able to affect climate more than Aurora Monroe. Nothing in the universe has been shown to materially affect temperature more than Bobby Drake. These mutant powers are unbeatable. And so if you can harness that into your products, then you can't be iterated out. I'd love to see them sell some of Forge's plant stuff though. I think that would be fun. Yeah. Not the weapons. Nobody needs a plant flamethrower. America yeah. is already fucked enough without plant flamethrowers in the streets because you can't even metal detect them. Jeremy Large writes, Hi, Connor and esteemed guest. Sebastian Shaw is one of my favorite X-Villains ever since I first encountered him in the Dark Phoenix Saga. I think his power set is unique and cool, absorbing physical and kinetic energy as opposed to directing it like Bishop. And I love the archetype of the arrogant aristocrat bastard with a code of honor. Except, of course, Sebastian doesn't really seem to have one of those. As I read all the way through the Claremont run for the first time this past couple of years, thanks to this podcast, I realized that Shaw is a real piece of shit through and through. <laughs> his collaboration with the Trasks to build Sentinels, it's lying, but I I get what you mean. His treatment of Tessa and Lourdes right up until his betrayal of Kate in Marauders. He really seems to have no principles or loyalty except to himself and his pocketbook. 
Now, this does make him a love-to-hate-him kind of villain, but my question is this. Do you think Shaw has any redeeming qualities? He did seem genuinely happy to see Harry Leland back, and I think maybe he even does feel real remorse for his bad treatment of Lourdes. So maybe he is capable of compassion for certain people in a mystique kind of way. Mm. Do you think he needs redeeming qualities to be a well-rounded or complex character? And as a follow-up, where do you see him on the Goldsmith Ackerman political compass of Krakoa? How do you think his selfish old money capitalist worldview complements or clashes with Charles, Eric, Emma, at all. All the best from Toronto, and until Sauron joins the Quiet Council and orders the five to bring people back in dinosaur bodies, make mine Cerebro. So here's the thing. They're not real people, right? I know I've stressed that a couple times. But so the redeeming qualities for me that a character has is whether or not I enjoy reading about them. And Shaw makes me laugh because he's such a douche. And it's funny. And when people drag Sebastian Shaw, it's funny to me. When Sebastian Shaw has a good line about what an asshole he is and how he loves to be an asshole, it makes me laugh. So like to me, those are redeeming qualities. In character... I think we are meant to look at the end of Jerry's Marauders as him reflecting on not only how he's treated Lourdes, but how he's treated Shinobi. And now that he is in a landscape where he wants for nothing and is the apex predator and yada yada, was it worth, like, because he would have gotten to Krakoa anyway, it turns out. Was it worth all of the ways that he hurt the people in his life? I think we are meant to view him as somewhat introspective in this period. And I think that's why people like Dee, who wrote in earlier, might be slightly uneasy about it because it could feel like we're being made to sympathize with an abusive guy. But I don't think that's really what it is. I think that it's a question of whether this kind of guy can change or can realize that he was wrong the friendship with harry is part of that because when we saw them back in the day it was much more of a like i'm the boss and you're the subordinate kind of thing and to recontextualize it as this very deep friendship it just helps us see these relationships as more human which i think then helps shaw see them as more human and gives us an opportunity to let him grow in the future. But it's hard to say when the stories to date haven't been written with that notion, right? Mm. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> uh, I was thinking about the political compass. Yeah. He's kind of hard economic right, but like straddling a little bit authoritarian and libertarian. In that, like, he would probably be very against government regulation of business, but he's, like, super into the military-industrial complex. Right. And that's on a real political spectrum. That's not on the Goldsmith-Ackerman political spectrum, which is specifically the model of Charles, Eric, and Emma as a triangle. And what I would say is that he is most like Emma, which makes sense, right? but that he has qualities that I associate more with Charles and with Eric. Mm. One is Charles's desire for assimilation. They are both notably the most long-term closeted mutants in this franchise. That makes sense. Charles doesn't come out as a mutant until Cassandra Nova outs him on national television. He also, though, is like Eric in a very specific survivalist way. Mm. Where I think Eric, until very recently, when Al Ewing 
just brilliantly advanced that character to a place where I'd now be content to never see him again if that were the way that the future went. Although I'm sure he'll be back because he's fucking Magneto, but you get what I'm saying. Until recently, his own survival has been the thing for him. And the mentality of we cannot let them destroy us. And Shaw, from a very different perspective and a less justified perspective mm -hmm. than Eric Lenzow or Max Eisenhart, whatever you want to call him, has a similar mentality of you can't destroy me, I must survive. But I would say that mostly he's like an Emma skewing Charles. Yeah, that makes sense. Sam Gladstone writes, Sebastian strikes me as the kind of person who has one weird kink. I know the idea mm. of the Hellfire Club was that they could get up to all kinds of kinky shit, but I always feel like Sebastian would hold back on one dirty little thing so he never has someone be able to hold it over him. What do you think it could be? And absolutely zero shaming these here. It just feels like he's got to keep one to himself. Klingon role-playing, pretty maid dresses, cock and ball torture. Thank you very much for your time and brain space, Sam Gladstone, recent ago. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, pie throwing. Sure. I was going to say that I think, and this is purely extrapolating on the like carnivore thing, I think he would be really into when he is with men, emasculating, feminizing type stuff with them. Oh, interesting. Fucking Christian Frost and being like, you're prettier than your sister, like shit like that. Oh, okay. Okay. You know Not what I mean? Other, I, I was thinking the other way around. No, no, no. Okay. Like feminizing the men that he's with. Yeah, I, I can see that. I could see. So that's a little cerebro after dark for all of you. I've just met a lot of men like Sebastian Shaw in my time. Robin Moffat writes, Hello, Connor and distinguished guest. I'm from Scotland, so go on. I know you want to bush your accent. Ha ha. First of all, thanks for an amazing podcast. I've spent the last six months catching up on the backlog and now feel like Sage with my X-Men specific computer brain. Speaking of Sage, that brings me to my question. What's the weirdest thing you think Sebastian Shaw ever asked Tessa to analyze? <laughs> Given how debaucherous Mr. Shaw is, I choose to imagine Sage once had to explain to him why scissoring is nowhere near as common as his porn collection led him to believe. <laughs> kind regards, Robin Moffat. I mean, like, I'm tempted, like, something really banal, like, you know, his lunch goes missing, and he's like, Tessa, analyze! Analyze, and right, no, like, yeah. No, they just haven't brought your lunch yet, you idiot. I'm obsessed with the idea of him having her analyze everything, which is why if you go to the Tee Public store, tpublic.com slash user slash Cerebro, you can get a, I just Cerebroed, <laughs> you get what I mean, the merch store, you can get a Valentine M. Smith-designed Tessa analysis t-shirt, where I think he's just, like, looking at his taxes or something, like, it's not... <laughs> He's just like, Tessa, analysis. And she's like, that, that probably fits. Like, yeah, I doubt he does you know? his own taxes. Oh, absolutely not. No, Tessa's doing everyone's taxes at the Hellfire Club. And that's why she's so exhausted. Because first of all, she's got like 70 offshore accounts for each of them to maintain. But uh, yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely the deal. And then I just want to point out that according to cerebral lesbian correspondent Sarah Century, scissoring is more common than you think it is. And we've now oh. over-exaggerated the degree to which lesbians don't scissor because we were all like, men think lesbians do nothing but scissor. But she's like, in my experience, as a lesbian, sometimes that occurs. And you can write in with your scissoring questions and thoughts to episode 100 on Madeline Pryor. Because guess what? In that Paris Chateau... I think the Scissor Sisters were at it. 
all day, every day between issues of X-Man. I don't feel like dancing. Exactly. Zachram Cumbria writes, I didn't mean to put the accent ones together. Dear Connor and Gust, from what I can tell, Shaw's always been a part of the Hellfire Club and has rarely been in any other group, which is odd considering the lifespan of the character as to others with the same shelf life or less being in numerous other groups, both inside and outside the X-Men sphere. So my question is, who else do you associate with a single group? And where would you like to see Shaw outside of the Hellfire Club? There's lots of people in who are like one-off kind of people, like, are you a marauder? Are you a you know new mutant or whatever? But I think an interesting question is where would you see Shaw elsewhere? I think the Generation mm. Hope thing was really funny, and you could do something similar where you throw him in with like a very unexpected cast of characters. I, I wouldn't mind seeing him as a political donor, like especially that transatlantic thing. That would be interesting. Yeah, that could be fun. I wouldn't mind seeing him and like Tony Stark. Oh, they, they hang out a bunch. Tony hates him. Yeah, it's like weird that they haven't been on panel together a bunch, but they should be. Because if Tony used to date Emma, Tony knows Sebastian really well. End of story. Because <laughs> they were like all fucking then, right. is the answer to that question. Broadway writes, hi, Connor, an uncanny accomplice. Broadway here, yes, like the street, long-time listener, I have two Shaw-amazing questions. First, with the bubbling theory of Mother Righteous as the heart sinister and the introduction of the astral phalanx, how do you think this would affect Shaw considering his deal with her in Judgment Day? I'm not the biggest Shaw expert, only an expert on Jen Shaw, but I've never known him to be super attached to Sinister, the astral plane, or the techno-organic aliens. Second, is it hard for you as a queer person to talk about Shaw and not have your friends think you're talking about Jen Shaw? As always, Thank you for the pod. It's truly nerd magic of the queerest kind. Broadway, aka Bway Third on Twitter. All pronouns welcome. So the thing about my accent as a New Yorker is that Shaw and Shaw are very different sounds to me. So when I talk about Jen Shaw or Sebastian Shaw, they're very different vowels. So I don't actually think that that has happened to me. Jen Shaw is going to serve more prison time than Sebastian Shaw ever has, which is kind of remarkable given all the things that he's done crime-wise. What do you think about the question, Stephen? Um, remind me what the question was? If Mother Righteous is a sinister oh, and all right. this stuff is okay, happening in the astral is, plane, what do we think? This is me being hoist on my petard because I, I was like a lone voice saying I didn't think... Uh, you were Mother... the one who spoke against me when I said yes. that Mother Righteous was clearly the heart sinister. You were like, I don't see it. The second Nathaniel Essex was talking about the Golden Dawn in 18-whatever, right, right. Aleister Crowley worshipped the Scarlet Woman, the mother of abominations. No, no, Come on. Yeah. You know, look, I, I will... I, I've always been good at owning my mistakes. No, it's okay. Listen, I did three hours on Teen Strife. I get it. We're all on the same boat here. So the astral stuff and the phalanx... I don't know how much of that is going to go beyond Legion of X number 10. Yeah, I don't think it's going to. But I do think what's interesting to contemplate is what deal Shaw made yes. with Mother Righteous. That's the... It's it's like her Faustian bargain... Like, what did he ask for is what I want to know. Yeah. yeah. And we did see art of Sebastian Shaw with his head on fire. Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of reminiscent of the Ghost Rider stuff that's happening with Banshee. Variants. Yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised if we get the answer in Sins of Sinister. 
And whatever's up with Mother Righteous in general, I imagine is going to play out in the pages of Nightcrawlers by Cyspurrier. So buy those books. They're coming out right now as you hear this. So, I mean, like Sins of Sinister 1 is out in 45 minutes as we're recording this. Isaac Jansons writes, hi there, longtime listener, first time I am dragged off stage right by a cane. Firstly, I'll just say that this podcast is amazing and is really facilitating such a sea change in finding really in-depth yet respectful ways to talk about the X-Men and their larger metaphors online. I'm super excited to hear not only Connor, but also Steven, whose work I've really admired in other fandoms, talk about the Victorian piece of shit that is Sebastian Shaw. Speaking of other fandoms, my question is this, considering you're both big fans. Which character in A Song of Ice and Fire is Shaw most similar to? And if Shaw were dropped into that world, how would his specific brand of capitalistic scheming fit within that patriarchal feudal system? Also, do you think Shaw does specific exercise sizes for the express purpose of flexing out of shirts or does his power facilitate that on its own cheers i think his power just does that but also he has mastered the art of the titty bounce that just rips the shirt open right gaston style he's very gaston vibes which is why when like gay men are like mm, sebastian shaw is hot and you're like what like just don't worry about it it's not this is just something that goes directly to the gay lizard brain and is deeply wrong and sad and you don't have to think about it any more than you already have just now I think he has similarities with Cersei, as we were just saying, and how he views sex and sexuality, but her whole deal is like being a woman trapped in right. that cage, which is not his deal. I think I, I mentioned this at maybe the top of the show, but Peter Baelish is the yeah. character that he's most That's like. The one. He is from a modest background. He is an economic and social politicking genius, and he maneuvers himself into the seat of power. And there is no one he will not sacrifice on the altar of his own personal advancement, including the woman he claims to love. Exactly. So that's pretty one-to-one for me. The book version, again, the show version, Aiden Gillen's a great actor, but that character was written so badly that it's, but if you read the book, guys, Littlefinger's scary as shit. He's a scary dude and he's really smart and is really fun to read Sansa become a mastermind by learning from him, but unfortunately you wouldn't know any of that from watching the show on HBO. Are you liking House of the Dragon? I haven't watched it yet because I was so burned. So I have not been watching it because in part got burned by the original. And secondly, the period of like Westerosi history that it's about is my least favorite. And I read all that stuff and hated it when I read it. So I'm like, I don't want to do that again. Mm, I'm going to check it out because I have heard it's really good. And, you know, I want to love again. And I also like, I know through the channels that I existed in my day job that George is really happy with it. So that's that's always nice. That's good. I mean, if they ever adapt the Blackfire Rebellions, I'll be there with bells on. Well, he wants to do that and Duncan Egg, like he's said. Yes, but, Duncan you know. Egg should be absolute slam dunk. Yeah. I'm, I'm honestly surprised they haven't done it before. They're developing a pilot or something. Yes. There's like, I think they've just had like 50 people write a screen treatment and none of them has like clicked yet. Mm. I'm still upset. I mean, I'm not upset because I think it would have been bad. But like for me as a Naomi Watts head, 
I am oh, bummed yeah, that about was... that one not happening because they filmed a pilot and I just want to see yeah. it, you know? I mean, I do think the problem with a prequel to A Song of Ice and Fire is that we just know none of this is, like, cosmically important. So it's essential, therefore, like, House of the Dragon works because these people's lives will be impacted by whatever they're doing. But, like, let's fight the White Walkers 3,000 years before we know the White Walkers were finally defeated was probably not that interesting. Yeah. Sadly. But they should hire Naomi wants to do something. She's great. She's one of the best there is. So last question. Marie Alexander writes, Dear Connor and esteemed guest Stephen Adewell, longtime listener, yada yada, Brooklyn by way of Hudson Valley honk accent. Please don't bother. It's bad enough I have it. Thank you for the pod and your Discord server. Without getting into the nitty gritty of my life at this time, you're doing work that makes this world a better place. Thank you for projecting positivity and critical thinking skills about two of the most important topics in the world to me, queer positivity slash education and the X-Men. It's changed the world in so many ways and will continue to do so long in the future. To sum it up, you're just great. Well, thank Thank you, Marie. Quick question. Isn't Sebastian Shaw's chest just fantastic? I mean, I would probably buy a miniseries based on him flexing, torso shots only in every panel, and the splash pages? Okay, real question, real question. Would you please rate your best chests of the X-World, top three at the least, until Connor gets retconned and actually makes this an Avengers podcast, make mine Cerebro. So I'm going to let you choose Lady Racks, which is not something we often do on this podcast. But... Uh okay trying to figure out how to how to like say this without coming off as like you know the that like infamous page from wizard magazine from the sure the yeah no okay fair we can we can leave the, the ladies out of it for now if you want i'm gonna just go off then um warren's chest turned me gay so i have to give it up to warren at the end of the day colossus mm-hmm. obviously also really key and then I think Sebastian's in the running, but Bishop is the other one where that dude is just huge. And I have to imagine that in the hands of the right artist, like Manifold would win just from that one Valerio Skeety Hellfire Gala design, but like Valerio Skeety just makes everyone's titties poppin', so that's not necessarily. Who is David Talaski making a cover of is the answer to this question. I don't know. I'm going to go Angel, Colossus, Bishop. Solid choices. And that's my final answer. Steven, thank you so much for being my guest. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Shaw before we wrap up? No, I think we have exhaustedly covered it. Why don't you tell the listeners how to follow you online and plug anything you want to plug? Mostly I spend time at raceforthearonthrone.wordpress.com and .tumblr.com. I am sort of in the process of exiting Twitter, but I'm at Stephen Apple. God, aren't we all? (laughs) You can also find my writing at Lawyers, Guns, and Money blog and graphic policy. There you have it. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast, you can get an ad-free version of every episode as soon as they go up, plus exclusive access to the secret files, bonus episodes including the Claremont Marathon read-along and the upcoming series Worrying About It. Please kick in. It makes a huge difference to my quality of life. And I really appreciate everybody who contributes to the Patreon. Thank you so, 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 so much. And if you can't, I still love you, but it would be great if you did.
You can find the merch store, the Discord server, and much, much more at strubercast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. Next week's episode will feature Dr. Holly Raymond, professor of English at Temple University, on Jamie Braddock, the monarch, a character I really love, who has gotten kind of a new lease on life on Krakoa. He's a bit of a breakout. And I'm excited to see where he goes next in his sister Betsy's ongoing adventures. Then Chuck Austin finally joins us to discuss his infamous and beloved run on Uncanny X-Men. We will be focusing on the character of Annie Gazakanian, but we'll be talking about Chuck's work generally. Questions are closed for those episodes, but they are still open for the season four finale, episode 100, Madeline Pryor featuring Sarah Century. I'm very, very excited about that, and it is going to be an event. So get your questions in now if you want to be part of Cerebro History. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you for your support. And until next time, everybody, bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.